Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Feiler. In today's episode, I have an exhilarating discussion with an old friend, Moishi, and a new friend, Jason. We discuss distributism, the movie Groundhog Day, the movie School of Rock, the concept of being an underdog, free will, the lasting effects of our childhoods, the rigors of the Jewish tradition, code switching, the hood mentality, the group NWA, the importance of present fathers, the Philando Castile case, not defunding the police, the story of Zadie and Zevi, the intellectual dark web, the importance of the Jewish tradition, and other topics. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, now I have started recording. Explicitly, we're live on the Kari Filer podcast. Thank you, uh, Jason. And then Moishi, Moshe, I'm going to ask you up front, how do you pronounce your name? I do. I pronounce my name. I personally pronounce, I don't know how to say it. So I kind of just say different things depending on who is asking. And I'm also called a lot of different things. So Interesting. I'm fine with either one. And uh, maybe Moishi to me, that's what my family calls me. So I like that you call me that um because it's like you that's like a more uh intimate name i don't know if intimate is the right word but um well, familiar I, I heard that so i was you know i i think you introduced yourself as moshe when we met maybe and i think i called you that for several years but then i saw uh, on some fiction i was watching Somebody goes, Moishi. And I said, wait a minute, that's his name. I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> My legal name is Moshe. Moshe. Yeah. Okay. M-O-S-H-E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, uh, I wrote, I never got a chance to tell you this, I don't think, but I referred to you in my, in one of my Arabic essays for in my class uh was we had to write an essay a short a very short essay like a one pager uh in arabic and i told a story about my friend moshe uh yeah <laughs> about how we would talk about philosophy uh walking around the campus i don't think you told me that that's yeah. uh do you have <laughs> do you have that essay no the- no when i got out of arabic i threw away all of those materials yeah, no, I didn't. It was very hard and I did not learn to the advanced degree. And I said, when am I ever going to need this stuff? Uh, but, you know, the savings upon relearning is there. So if ever I need to learn Arabic, I've had some exposure and I can get up to speed a little bit more quickly than someone who's never been introduced to it. If you want to learn Hebrew, maybe it'll be a little bit easier. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. So please, uh, please introduce yourself. Uh, I will. I will. So please introduce yourself for the handful that are, are people are listening, uh, Moshe and Jason. Okay, I'll jump in. I was introduced to you through my friend Moshe Khan, and there's something I really want to do here. I want to tease out when Moshe tells me that you are thought of by him as like a leader. You have brilliant philosophical ideas. I naturally am gravitated to want to hear everything that you have to say on the things that you're most passionate about. So I know that you're working on a concept called distributism, and I'd love to learn about that. 
Sure, sure. Uh, red hair are, uh, you know, challenge accepted. So I have become over the past, let's say, let's say six months uh, to, to put a, you know, a really discreet period on it. Uh, really disheartened and and just upset about America generally. Uh, and, you know, the the recession, the pandemic, the bad economy, the bad leadership. I've never been a fan of Donald Trump and I'm not a fan of Joe Biden either, but I think he's better than Trump. I think Joe Biden's a corpse more or less. Now we know these. How do you how do you express externally this disappointment? Because it seems to conflict with how much of a zest you have for life and the way you speak with the gusto that you have. Like, I don't know you at all. I Mm. have seen a tiny little picture of you thus far. I've heard a lot about you from Moshe, but I can't imagine you to be someone that's like a Debbie Downer about like, you seem optimistic. I am. I'm deeply optimistic. I'm, I'm no fan of, uh, of the American regime. Uh, I'm optimistic about the human species and what we're going to do, but this country uh, and its short-term future, to me, it's just going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, the analogy... That well, I- saying that it's a short-term future is is not... I don't really no, no, buy no. that from no. you. In the short-term future. So I think America will have a long and prosperous career. Uh, I just think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so... But you asked me about uh, distributism. So... Since the let's say 2000, really, uh, so we can we can credit Gen. What are the new ones called? Gen Z, the newest ones. That Gen are on, Gen on, Us. Gen Us uh, that are all on TikTok, Instagram. So, oh no, I'm not. Yeah, they've never seen a prosperous America, right? Just since the 9/11 attacks, and you know the. Uh, housing crisis is just for them. It's just been down, 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 down. They've never really seen a, you know, that we had the boom, the dot com boom in the nineties for us uh, millennials, but they, they didn't see that they were born after that. So it's just been going down, 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 down. So in the past six months, uh, I just began analyzing what's going on with America, right? Why is America having so many problems? We've got so much money, why, how are we, how are we in this seemingly downward trajectory is the question I was asking myself. And every time I got to the, to the, what I felt like was the root of a problem, it was greed every single time. And I said, this can't be the case. It can't be greed every time. And every single time I was analyzing a social ill, at some point I came across greed to be the ultimate source of it. Now, in the past month or so i've actually expanded that that analysis beyond america so i don't think um, i don't think america is is the only pr- greedy nation uh i think greed is a deep human problem but capitalism as a system doesn't do anything to retard to use the word in in the way that it can be used here to retard human greed uh, to 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 push back against and and kind of make it not cool to be greedy, right? Capitalism makes it cool to be greedy, uh, and so I said, well, this system cannot last because greed. And you know, and and like I said in the past month or in the past six months, for the first five, it was just America. America is greedy to the core. 
in the past month, I've really come to say, you know what? As I look at the other world's problems, you look at you look at uh, Europe, Europe's problems and probably Russia's problems, and who knows how many problems? It's probably human greed a lot of the time, right? So it's not like it's not like greed is a uniquely American phenomenon, and so we just need a new system. Uh, and so whatever capitalism, capitalism will go away. Uh, the analogy that I use is if we were two people talking during the uh, feudal era. And we were talking about what the next system would be. We wouldn't be able to use the word capitalism because it wouldn't have existed yet. But we could say with confidence that there would be some system better than feudalism that will follow this follow this because you can't just have lords and peasants. Uh, this is this isn't going to go on forever. So I'm calling distributism the next system that will come after capitalism because capitalism does not do enough to make greed not cool. Uh, and so the next system, I think, will leverage the incredibly powerful profit motive, motive will leverage the powerful uh, invisible hand that, that checks, that makes prices on the market and, and will leverage market competition, but will also t- make it not cool to be greedy. Uh, and so that's why I call it distributism, because it will distribute the abundance that private property and private enterprise generate for us rather than concentrate and accumulate in the hands of 26 uh the rewards of these of our efforts and so that's why i call it distributism can you talk more about that how is that going to work practically um what i'm thinking now is that we can so and so on on the questions we ask each other are we say how much do you make what do you do right uh i think the questions we'll ask each other in distributism is how much do you distribute right well, still, what do you do? But how much do you distribute? How how many, how much dollars are you giving to people? Not just how much is in your bank account, but how much are you giving to people? And then that will be cool. Like uh, Elon Musk, when he takes a dollar for running PayPal, I don't know if you remember that because he was already rich. So he didn't have PayPal cut him a check. It just cut him for a dollar. That was cool. Right. And and to the to the little bit that got celebrated, it could have been celebrated more. And I think more people, more billionaires should, you know, cut their wage down to a dollar once they cross a personal net worth of $2 billion. I think that should be cool. And so I'm not talking about writing legislation uh, to push anyone this way. I'm simply talking about really framing the way we think about the flow of capital uh, as a truly flowing system and just admit that it's not cool to stack billions of dollars. That's not cool, man. You're not helping anybody. You know, move that stuff around, right? Distribute it. Uh, and so that's all I'm talking about. I'm talking about a change in conception and a change in conversation, not a change in legislation at all. Uh, and I think if we just talk about it differently, if we think about it differently, and if we do that, then the laws will follow, right? L- laws are a lag. It's hard. It's hard, man. That's really, that's really lofty. And that's why I'm yes. getting at, you're just like, you're such a beautiful mind to brand a, a whole system. Yes. That's. Now, I'm calling it distributism because there's because I'm just saying, like I said, with the feudalism thing, I'm talking about something that doesn't exist yet. So I just have to use a word that I've made up because there will be some system after capitalism. You agree to that, right? Capitalism. You don't think capitalism will last forever, do you? I don't know enough. I would say that it's just an expression of power and the yes. system we have now is is different than the feudal system. Yes. 
but it's not that much different and it's just expressions of power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I'll be first to say that capitalism is the worst socioeconomic system except for all the other ones, right? And so all I'm saying is that systems change, the names of systems change, and I myself am no longer a capitalist because it seems to me that capitalism, the way it's practiced around the world, is inseparable from the love of money. It seems to me that we've got a wheat and chaff problem here. That the love of money... You, you, you want to make the heteronormative, idealized power, like that force that we all want and can't really talk about, you want to make that not cool. Well, I guess one way oh, to no, do it... No, I maybe, didn't say anything about hetero. No, no, I didn't say anything about hetero. I just mean like... Maybe I was just trying to sound smart, but the concept of like... The concept of power. You're trying to make power not cool. No, no, That's no. No, no, no. We have a will to power. We always have a will to power. I'm trying to make gross capital accumulation not cool. Once you've got three but billion dollars. But that is dollars, cool. But that is cool. Eh, it's really not, though. It's really not. Once you've got three billion dollars personal net worth, stop stacking. Just stop right there. Right? Pay yourself a dollar. Start giving it the rest. There's no reason to stack to $10 billion, $20 billion. What's the point of that? Right? What's the point of that? Personal. Now, here, but now, let me, now, let me tell you this. Because it's fun. Let me tell you this. That's personal net worth. I am not going to knock a company, you know, Apple, for instance, for having however many billions they need to have on hand to cover operating costs. Okay. That's, that's a company, right? And so I'm, I'm, I believe in overturning Citizens United because I do not think that companies are people. I think they're different things and I, I like to treat them differently. I want to make it not cool for individuals to stack $10 billion. Now, and, and this, this is why I say making it not cool. Because as to your point, there will always be the will to power. And there will always be powerful people that use their power to accumulate power, to concentrate power. And actually, we could talk about the history of the species as being struggles between concentrating and distributing power right uh you could you could probably and you could probably look at the whole history of the species through that lens uh, so that's all i'm talking about yeah so i think we we're currently in a phase where concentration has been happening uh and i think we will need to shift to a phase where di concentration of power we will need to shift to a phase where distribution of power is the is the dominant paradigm uh, more than the concentration is. And I'm just, I'm on that wave now. I'm not on the concentration wave anymore. I don't think it's cool. What do you like? Martin Luther King meets Jesus Christ. Like you're trying to make no, power. Not, not you're trying to make, you're trying to make power. Not cool. And no, I'm trying to make accumulation of capital. Not cool. You can still be a powerful power person without a $10 billion in the bank account. Jesus was powerful. How much money did he carry around? Mm -hmm. Accumulation, I guess. I guess maybe I'm still just trying to digest what you're saying. And because it's blowing my mind and I want to get to the heart of it. Sure. So how do you, so then say more on anything practical you've thought of how this might look? Uh, I think so. I think it will look in terms of like the forms we fill out when we file, we will say we 
these are our ex expenses. Uh, these are our purchases. And then the, and for, let's say, a company. I do have ambitions to run. I'm, I have ambitions to run a game company. I currently run the company. It's got one employee. doesn't pay them anything. Uh, but eventually, I hope to have more employees and pay them something. And so when we do this, we'll have expenses. I'll work for you. Thank you. <laughs> we'll go through the roof if you're working for me, uh, Moshe. <laughs> I know that much. So we'll have expenses, and I will categorize those expenses as, and they will only be inanimate goods. So expenses are tables, computers, doors, right? Things like that. Then there will be uh, contractor payments, which are, or maybe third party payments or something like this, where I'm paying to a company for some service or for something like that. But then we will break out payroll as distributions, right? Because currently in our current, the way we talk about uh, payroll, we talk about it as an expense. People go, oh, yeah, this is going to be so expensive. And you're talking about the money you're going to give to people. Well, wait a minute. That's not really a quote unquote expense the same way as buying a table is when you're paying John to do a task because John's going to take that food and he's going to feed his wife. He's going to feed his kids. So we don't need to treat giving money over for a product exactly the same way we treat giving money directly to another human being. And so what I want to do uh, in the distributed framework, and this is a conversational framework. I can't be, I can't be uh, clear. I can't express that enough. I'm not talking about legislation, right? I'm not a member of the woke left who wants to write laws to make everybody agree with me. Uh, that's definitely not what I'm doing. But in the, in this conversational framework, I just want to make it so that we're clear when we say we distributed funds in these ways, we gave money directly to people in all these different ways. And isn't that cool? Look at how much money we distributed. Isn't that cool? More cool than any money we accumulated. That's it. I think that's practical, right? So just breaking out expense, just no longer referring to payroll as an expense, but instead as a distribution. It is pretty cool. And people do that already. That's something that exists. There's very wealthy people that do very cool initiatives with their time and resources and power and wealth. And it's cool. And they get recognition for it. And Sometimes there's dinners, sometimes there's just local people that know something. So I do hope that it grows. I mean, how do we get this word out of distributism? It's kind of a catchy phrase, distributism. Yeah, yeah, I just came up with something new and you know, it's and for for me the real, you know, I'm I'm a student of Jordan Peterson. So, you know, for me, I don't expect to have any real quote unquote influence on the world. Uh, I cannot control the world. Uh, one way to guarantee yourself a headache is try to control an adult. Uh, you're going to get a large headache from doing that. I don't I don't care to control anyone. I control myself. Right. And so for me, the most recent philosophical. Uh, what did you say about controlling an adult? It's a guaranteed way to give yourself a headache. And also. A, often a way to guarantee power and wealth, but continue. Well, I mean, controlling an adult, right? I, I think maybe you're talking about paying an adult, which I would say is a different thing. Uh, but just controlling, fully controlling an adult, uh, as in they or we, I, I guess let me ask you that. What would you say is the difference between controlling someone and paying someone? Is there a difference there? Um, I think if you're talking about control, it sounds more absolute and unqualified, whereas if you're paying someone then there could be disloyalty or 
you don't really have control. You just, you have a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, so I guess when, mm-hmm. when I, when I was saying controlling adult, I was thinking to myself, trying to control someone without paying them. I guess, I guess if you're giving them money, then you're kind of trading with them. Right. And then, but I wouldn't call, I wouldn't call that. I wouldn't call paying someone controlling them. Right. Would, you wouldn't call the, you wouldn't call paying someone controlling them. Would you? No, it's just an economic relationship. Yeah, yeah. Should be, it's supposed to be a fair exchange. No, when I meant controlling someone, I meant like a brother trying to control a sister by always telling her, do this, do this, do this. Well, you know, not, not, a, not a boss-employee relationship. That's not what I had in mind. Um, mm-hmm. Why did I say all that? I was going down I some other I feel controlled when I work. I mean, say we're supposed to feel owned when we're work, man. That's how the isn't that how the bosses view it? They own your time now. They bought your time and now it's all theirs. They bought your attention for eight hours, right? Isn't that the fair trade? Do you click a mouse ever? Are you clicking a mouse, Corey? No. Oh, here clicking. Um. I also was listening to your podcast with Moshe before we hopped on here, and I saw that your favorite movie was Groundhog Day. Yes. I watched some film analysis about it. It's really cool. It's a great premise. What 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 was inspiring about it for you? Well, for me, the uh, the moral is actually what's so deeply redemptive. Uh, because for me, the moral of Groundhog Day is unless you learn to care about someone other than yourself, you'll be stuck for eternity. Can you set it up? Just talk about Act 1 and through the rest of the story? Uh, for Groundhog Day? Yeah. Um, well, for those who haven't seen it, I would say that Groundhog Day is a film about a man who... Uh, begins a journey to cover the uh what's it called the the i don't, I don't know what it's called the, the weather report by the groundhog uh he begins the journey of covering the weather report of the of the groundhog uh as a selfish man and he learns that that's really not the best way to do it uh and i guess if the movie's over 10 years old spoiler alert stop here if you haven't seen it uh in the movie he lives the uh you know Give them a few seconds. If you've never seen Groundhog's Day. Okay. Now we're going to assume everybody here is ready to have the movie spoiled. Okay. I love how sacred it is to you. Like, yeah, it's a great you, movie. You actually, I don't want to ruin okay, it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Uh, so in Groundhog Day, for those who haven't seen it and are ready to have it spoiled, the guy lives the same day, Groundhog's Day, over and over and over and over and over. The same one day. He doesn't age. He doesn't get sick. He just wakes up. No, he, he can't even kill himself to get rid of this day. Uh, and what he, you know, he, and he tries several times to kill himself to try to get out of the day and he can't do it. And what he discovers is that the only way to get out of this trap was to actually genuinely care about other people. So it's a great movie. Yeah. What's your favorite movie, Jason? I don't have a favorite movie. That's too tough a question. I thought it's cool that you have one and it's, it's a beautiful lesson. I watched it as a kid and I didn't remember I didn't understand the gravity of it. I just kind of watched this weird situation that this guy was going through. Yeah. Moishi, what's your favorite movie? Uh, the two movies that I've probably watched the most in my life are Gladiator and School of Rock. So I would go with those two, even though it's constantly changing. I'm always 
watching new movies. Um, now, Gladiator, but, I kind of get, but School of Rock, why? Um, why? I just it's, saw it recently it's with fun. Marcia. It's just, it's so fun. <laughs> That's it's Jack not. Black and it's a bunch it's of kids, not. Right? It, yeah, it's a really. It's a really. I found it to be annoying, and it was really? also. Yeah, the main character is just boorish and disgusting, and it's tough to even get through. But there's such. You love him in the end, despite how shitty this guy is. Like he's just doing this one thing that is so undeniably beautiful. He's getting all these kids that are kind of. You wouldn't expect them to get together on such a high level, but they're all collaborating to like do the band in spite of the authorities, the school telling them they can't have this band with this like drunkish, loud guy, Jack Black. And then they do it. They they and he's still horrible. He's he's disgusting. Like from start to finish. I have a a better answer for why why I love it because I like the idea of this character that is so committed to his art that his life is in complete shambles, but it doesn't matter. And he just loves music. And even though he's like not that great and everybody around him is like, thinks he's a weirdo, but he's just so passionate about it. And, and then like the fact that he's able to inspire these kids to like see things differently. And that's what I like about it. But no, actually the real answer is that it came out, when I was whatever a kid and there was some summer when I wasn't going to camp and I just watched this movie that whole summer. So anytime I watch it now, it has that nostalgic feeling for me since it's, you know, that's, that's why when I um, said like gladiator and school of rock, I've watched those the, the most times because I watched that probably 50 times at least that summer um i watched gladiator probably when i was too young to watch it um but i feel like every time i watch it i like gain greater appreciation for it just the whole story and yeah the music acting now uh what's the main character's name in gladiator it's not vasilius Maximus Decimus Meridius. There it is, Maximus. So is Maximus is the underdog, right? So there's a bit of an underdog story in in wait. Gla- you know what? You said Gladiator, but you know what I had in my mind this whole time? 300. Uh 300. yeah, so I need wait, so I need he, to remember I I Gladiator with you're talking about Gladiator with Russell Crowe where he's going up against yeah. Joaquin Phoenix. Okay, yeah, I've seen that a couple yeah. times. Okay, I I need to get I had 300 in my head, which is Wait, so you thought 300 that you thought it made sense that 300 would be my favorite movie? Yeah. Why not? It's awesome. Really? All right. <laughs> it is awesome. <laughs> um, Gladiators, I think, more time. Gladiator is a beautiful film. No doubt about that. It is a beautiful film. Yeah. Uh, okay. So is Jack Black underdog at all? Is there any, are there any underdog themes in School of Art? Yeah, he's the, he's the underdog. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that makes sense to to something that would resonate with to with from my understanding of of what you like. I think you like a good underdog story. Mm, probably. How about you, Jason? How do you feel about the the theme of the of the underdog and what it means for for film? You're so right. Like that's 
the main thing that I like about almost every movie that that you're rooting for this underdog. Mm. I never realized that. <laughs> so good. Would you say Groundhog Day is like that? Um, like he becomes the underdog in the in the cosmic sense because he's completely helpless to this greater power that's making him relive the day. And then he becomes this pathetic character that like all these silly, outrageous things happen to him. Could I no, nah, I I wouldn't say I wouldn't say Groundhog Day is has a whole lot of underdog thing, but I would say that Groundhog Day is almost like a hundred percent man versus himself, right? So you know the you know man versus the world, man versus man. And so underdog typically is like a man versus man theme, right? So but one Groundhog Day is one hundred percent man versus himself. Uh, so, I mean, are you the underdog against yourself, right? That's kind of hard to say. Yeah, I think you are. You are the under... Hey, you know what? That's the... That's the. Uh, you know, you got a dark wolf on one shoulder and a white wolf on the other. Which one wins the one you feed, right? I think that we're all... Um, well, I don't know. I don't know how to make it about everybody. But... I, I don't know. I'm just marinating in this idea of underdog man versus himself as an underdog. I, I've never even verbalized or considered that concept at all, but it seems possible. Like in a movie sense, it's like Bill Murray's character is being crushed by the force of this premise. Like Moshe said, it's this cosmic force. And you you mentioned will to power. I'd love for you to talk more about what that means exactly, because I don't really know. But it's like sometimes I feel like I'm just a rock that someone threw and I'm being hurled, and it barely like there's so many forces that are moving me through. And on some level, I have a choice, and it feels like I'm choosing different doors. But there's also this feeling that like man, I sometimes I'm just incapable of defeating my own will, you know. So yeah, I kind of yeah yeah no one hundred percent. I'm in the same boat. Uh, recently, I've been I have so the ball is in my court for this project uh, that I'm a part of on for this uh, Minecraft development project, and the ball's been in my court since Thursday morning, I think. Uh, and so I told myself I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna work on it Thursday afternoon. I didn't. I said, I'm gonna work on it Friday morning. I didn't. I said, I was going to work on it this morning. I didn't. But you know what I did do though? I told them in the chat that I would have them an upload by Sunday night. <laughs> so that's what, that's, that's how I, I've learned in my, uh, just knowing myself and, and talking about the battle of against oneself that I gave myself some room to where I could try to do it early. Uh, but now I also gave myself a deadline that I'm accountable to others for that if I don't come through it, then I, you know, then that's bad news and I'll probably get it done by tomorrow. And it's, um, we're talking about like two and a half hours of work here. So it's not like it's going to take me a full day to do it, but no, I totally, I totally agree. And I actually, I think that the, the battle in life, uh, and this comes from actually many years of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't ever, I don't know if I ever told you this Moshe, but I've said it on the podcast. So it's not new public information. I spent a lot of time. I think you've told me. Have I it. told you? Yeah. I spent a lot yeah. of time sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, is just steeped and, uh, in, enriched and entrenched and, and completely interwoven with all these 
kind of Christian slash biblical slash psychological premises and practices. And so you just you can't get away from it that the real battle in life is you versus yourself. Right. That's the real battle. And so people who say, oh, you know, the world is my enemy, this and this and this true. You know, the world has to your point, Jason, the world is influencing forces on you. But I'm a proponent of that, that five uh, percent of life is what happens to you. Ninety five percent is how you react to it. So that ninety five percent is how much are you in control of your actions? That's the real question. Right. All right. I think one of the topics that we have discussed and argued with i would say the most over the years is is free will mm. and that that i'm being reminded of that now it's a rich i one. feel like for a long time i don't know where you're at uh these days on that on free yeah, will. Um, has it changed has it changed over the past few years would you say i th- i th- i go i chew it on it all the time uh it's the will is the will is such a complex call let's call it phenomenon um i guess my latest position with quote unquote free will uh first first to qualify uh and i'll i'll put this to you guys as a question so let's, let me ask you guys this question so there is a machine it's a big universal machine or and it's a computer and it can predict the position, spin, uh, and action of every atom in this universe that is spinning out, uh, that is spinning out of itself ahead of time. And that includes the uh, creatures that it creates, what they will do, and when they will do it. So this machine spits out a universe. And in this universe, there's a guy named Johnny. Johnny turns 21 and he robs a bank. The machine predicted before the onset of the universe exactly when, where, why, and how, and for what reasons Johnny would rob this bank. I think I called his name Johnny. Did I call him Jimmy? I don't know. One of the J names. I'm sticking with Johnny now. I'm going to try to stick with Jason. Johnny. His name's Jason? Is it, so Jason, no, Jason's name. <laughs> Jason robs a bank. Uh, and But the computer predicted that Jason was going to do it. I used to dream, Moshe, we went to pizza with my friend Yaakov, and... Me and him are, he's my oldest friend. He lived around the corner from me. And I would say that for years, one of the most dominant features of our conversation was how we could get away with robbing banks. Like <laughs> just different strategies to rob banks. Like we, it was a lot of fun. So in, in this universe, so in this universe we're in right now, you didn't rob the bank. But in the universe that this machine created, you did rob the bank. And it predicted before it even spun the universe out that you were going to rob it and exactly why, how, and when. You yourself or or you in that universe, the the Jason that did rob the bank, has no idea that this computer exists. But we do. The question is, did that Jason act of his own free will? So what what are your guys' answers to that? Did that Jason, that version of Jason who robbed the bank and it was predicted that he was going to rob the bank by a computer, did that Jason act of his own free will? I think of John. Oh, you go ahead. No Since way, Moshe. Go for it. <laughs> okay. No way, go you. Yeah. Um. I think if Johnny was experiencing what we experience when we, you know, feel like we have free will, if if he experienced the world as we experience it, then he would have free will, even if it was, you know, set in motion 
from the beginning of the machine. Even if even if it was predicted long before it happened, he still yeah acted up his own. To me, free will free will is the experience. It's more of an experience, and so if he is feeling that he is making decisions, then that is then he is exercising free will. You agree with that, Jason? No, this is. I mean, sure, but I don't like the paradigms that we're talking about. This, the <laughs> we're scientists, so that's is that what you mean? I mean that there's no, there's it's it's using words that they don't match up. So like, I've spent time trying to wrap my head around this too, but I feel like this universe is so vast. If you really boil down we don't know why we don't know why there's something rather than nothing we don't know why we do certain things like we use words like passion and but we don't really know why we do things and we know a little bit we know within the social constructs and consequences that we all have but if you really get down to it we don't know so it's kind of like silly to talk about it's just like within our like concept of like should i open this door or not yeah we can choose that but like it's it's just you're such a you're part of such a bigger thing that you don't have any control over and you don't even know why it's happening or what's going on so there's both the question is this and this is to this is to dig at uh, each individual answerer's uh, understanding of the phrase free will is that if and if the be if the decisions and behaviors of an organism can be predicted is that animal acting of its own free will and so that digs at the the personal definition that you carry of the phrase free will so it sounds like it sounds like you disagree jason i want to push back against what jason said because i think that (laughs) there's certain way in which he glides through life and there's certain things that i'll notice and be like oh why do you do that way wouldn't it be easier if you did it this way and to him, it's just like, no, that's that's how he's always done it. That's the way he does it. Even if it's more inconvenient, just don't don't get involved. And I think, you know, you're saying why even talk about this? Why discuss it? I think if you had a a better sense that you have free will and everything in your life, you can't change it overnight. But you could set certain processes in motion, which over time, over days, over months, over years maybe that ties into the groundhog day like you know he, from where he started he couldn't get to be the guy that she wanted to be with who was selfless overnight he had to spend who knows how many days going over that and if you you know if you go your whole life and you're just viewing each day on its own how do i get through this day and uh, without thinking about the bigger picture of how you could you know change your environment, change your habits. All these things are malleable. You're in control of it. I think it's very powerful and you could unlock versions of yourself that you didn't know were there. Thank you. Very inspiring. You're almost as inspiring as Kari. And I think that my problem of not being able to embrace imperfection doesn't negate my opinion on free will. Do you think, Jason, free will is... A capacity that humans have do humans have free will of course of course so 
so did this hypothetical Jason who robbed a bank but is predicted act of his own free will? I mean, I'll make jokes that Moshe can see coming a mile away. Did I say a joke that of a free will? Like, was I born of free will? I, it's kind of this just, it's like gravity. Like, do you choose that there's gravity? Do you choose... You know what I mean? No, yeah, we here's can. What it, no, those are those are easily split up. Yeah, uh, and I'll, I can split those up because I've been doing uh, thinking about choice for a long, long time. So to to answer that, uh, no, you didn't choose to be born. None of us chose to be born. Uh, in fact, you didn't choose your parents. Uh, you didn't choose when you were born, who you were born to. That much is one hundred percent luck or unluck, depending on your position. Uh, but what I like to do is I like to say, okay, well, by the time a person reaches biological adulthood, which is 25 years old, not just legal adulthood, which is 18, because your frontal cortex isn't myelinated until you're 25 for the average person. So at that point, you're an adult. And I say, okay, your luck has been converted to 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 will. But there's no denying that humans do have a at least a sense of agency. And so were you born? Was that a, was did you choose gravity? Did you choose to be born? Did you choose to be human? No, you didn't choose those things. But did you choose your career path? Do you choose your friends? Do you choose what schools you do? What shows you do and don't, don't watch? Yeah. Choice is a real phenomenon for sure. You choose whether or not to kill yourself. And right. if you don't, then you get to keep doing it. And it's it's quite it's quite extraordinary to be or not to be. Nice. Nice. That is the question. Mm -hmm. And the answer is to be. And to be for what? How are we going to make distributism a thing? Are we going to buy a plot of land near Lancaster, California, that's like four bucks an acre? Well, to to begin on that, uh, but then also to address Moshe's question of where I stand this day, on uh, these days on free will, I'm really thinking that agency itself is the gift or at least a large part of it agency itself is the gift right so there there's only one true agent and that's god god is the you know there's nothing but god uh and so but god in his generosity and i and i use his when referring to God, because I use his for myself and I encourage everyone whose pronouns are different than mine, whatever pronouns you use for yourself, use those pronouns for God, because God is all of us. Right. So I refer to God as him. And so what I think he's done is that he in his generosity, he has given us this sensation of agency freely. Uh, and he's the only agent. But he gave us the sensation of agency to say, to share and say, you know, kind of, isn't this awesome being an agent? Uh, and so that's, and so that's what I'm thinking about it with free will. I mean, there's no, there's, and so even if, even if it's predicted, even if I'm predictable, right, even if you could make a machine and predict everything that I'm going to do before I'm doing it, I still have the sensation of free will. And to me, that's, that's good enough to call it a phrase, right? Uh, even if I'm predicted. So yeah, I, I do think we have free will. And my current standing on it is that uh, the agent, the sense of agency itself, conscious agency is a, is a gift from God. I think this is the, the biggest change. I mean, there's so many things that I've feel like I've seen you change over the years. Uh, 
when I was trying to describe you to, to Jason, I I didn't really even try. I gave like basic indicators because there's so many other things that I'm like, you know, it's gone through, you know, like your, your relationship to religion, I feel like has changed a lot. Your, your focus on science has changed. Um, how you, how much you care about your black identity, I think has changed. There are a lot of, a lot of these things that I feel have changed. So, uh, you invoking God in a, in a, in a, you know, discussion about free will. It's, it's very interesting to me. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think about it a lot. <laughs> I think about it a lot, a lot. I mean, I, t I tell you what, that phraseology I just gave you right there, I thought I, was, I think about it in the shower. I, that, those are my shower thoughts right there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, I'm you, always you thinking a, about you, where we are and what we're doing. You, you had a good, uh, really beautiful one yesterday. Do you, do you remember what I'm referring no, to? I don't know what the, you're talking about. If there was just one person. Oh, how you, you know? it, that, what read that uh, objective objective reality is constituted entirely by subjective testimonies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came up with that phrase while driving on the four hundred five. Oh no, you you were saying if you're just one person, if you're the only person that existed, you wouldn't know that you're just not a blob of flesh. You know, That's traveling right. through space. Well, and whatever. you know, I won't I won't take credit for that line of reasoning. That's Descartes, right? Uh, it's just I just understand it and, and phrase it and talk about it but no Descartes did that I think therefore well, I am you're remixing a little a you're little bit good. a little bit you know if if you take look if you take Rene Descartes uh and put him in a room with David Deutsch then you're and then if De if Rene Descartes had a podcast with David Deutsch I want to listen to that because uh, that would be incredible uh Rene Descartes showed that the only thing I can't doubt is my own existence. Uh, and David Deutsch, I think he's argued eloquently that knowledge is what will what will now. He, I think he argues that knowledge is ultimately what will set us free as a species. Um, and that's not to, uh, you know, over overlap or trump the phrase. The truth will set us free. The biblical phrase the truth will set us free. Just that, you know, knowledge and truth together. Right. Uh, there you go. Now we're really going to be free. Knowledge and truth together, now we'll really be free. I think the only thing that makes me sad, now I've boiled it down because of this conversation, what you said, like you were disenfranchised and you're talking for the disenfranchised youth. And I think that there's a lot of Did optimism I say that? out there. I don't know. That was the thing i was like bickering with you when we first started this that i was disenfranchised i don't think I that you felt like the future of this country was bleak yes and i do that yeah any of that kind of sentiment is the only thing the near -term that, that hurts future. me near-term future yeah that kills me because i look into my nephew's eyes i see the kids and I'm driving through traffic in LA and this life is just so crazy that if we all just believed that more people would be like you and Moshe, like hippie vibes, like distributism sort of ideas, and this is all great. And it, it's just like that sort of mind shift. 
But, I guess. But let me let me uh, reiterate that I am not saying that you know more people should be like me. I didn't use that phrase, right? That's not a phrase that I throw around. Uh, I don't think more people should be like me. I think more people should be like themselves. I think more people should be free to investigate who they are and be that. Don't be like me. Be like you. Sure. Yeah. That's 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 cool. That that's what a cool person would say. Jason is just uh, turning on to this what uh, this way of living now. A thinker. <laughs> Sorry to throw that no, out there, Jason. Uh, that's not what I didn't mean to to diss. But uh, what did you mean by the way of living? What do you, what do you, what do you mean, Jason? Would you? Because I, I think I've, I think I've of, always I think no, of I've us always as philosophical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're obviously a very smart person. So what do you what do you mean uh, way of what what what's the transition you're going through, Jason? I'm not. I'm not. Well, um, Jason was in the system. Jason believed that he had to make more money. He had to move up in position and become more powerful and that's what's important no it i knew that that was wrong but i was just on that i only saw that i only saw that really as legitimate and i didn't understand that i could choose for myself something you said Corey, like the arkari i should ask you how to pronounce your name but the you said the right thing that okay the thing that you said um in the beginning of like you go to a party and it's like what do you do i have not asked that question in a year since i got to know moshe mm. and that has revolutionized so much of how i encounter people and you, greet you people wanna, and receive people i want to tell just briefly this story of how i got to know jason because uh he was best friends with the boyfriend of my friend so so i met him once or twice and I think the first time we met, he, he was kind of asking the question of what do you do? And I wasn't really like giving him anything. He he couldn't figure me out. And so he just kind of like got frustrated with me. And many years later, I started like a year ago, I started using Twitter and then I connected with him on there and he got to see into my mind a little bit. And, uh, and then uh, for the past year, we've become very close and we've both influenced each other, I think, in very positive ways um, because he's more of a doer. He, he has all these different projects going on and he, he, like the, his podcast, I don't know where he gets this urge to, I, I got to go, I got to rent cameras, go travel to Portland to interview like I don't know where it comes from, but it's something that I don't have at all. <laughs> and uh, I feel like I've been very grateful for uh, having him as, as a friend now. And uh, it's exciting for me to be able to connect you two because there you go, two podcasters. I could just sit back and listen to you guys talk for hours. Yeah, we should make this a radio program. I, I'm, uh, I'm game. I'm game. It sounds to me maybe, and then and, and tell me where this is, you know, correct this, Jason, and where this, where this is wrong. Uh, it sounds like maybe you're becoming more curious uh, and you're kind of asking the question of, wait a minute, was I 
was I not curious, kinda? <laughs> and now you're becoming curious about the world and and and, and things. I don't know. Is, there, is is it something like that or no? Yeah, I wasn't asking the right questions. Mm. Mm. I didn't. Yeah, but I was asking. I was Lord knows I was trying. You know, I was looking and. But it's the it's the maybe the micro bubble I was raised in, and I was kind of not. I was moving only like. Hmm. I don't know what it is. Maybe I can't pinpoint it yet because I'm maybe, kind of in this metamorphosis at the moment. Maybe it might be useful to describe the type of world you live in because I don't know if like we take it for granted, but it's not normal. Interesting. Sure. Um, I guess not to divert that. I'll go into that in a second, but just thank you, Moshe, for the kind words that you did say about me. And I think that you're not wrong about our yin yang situation. You have this incredible ability. If I just like plopped you into different places, like kind of how I think about your dad, who I've only, even though I've been hanging out with you for so long, I just met him a, a week ago or two. And I just, it all came, it all comes together. Like the legend of this guy that I've heard a lot about for a year. And then I meet him, like he worked for direct TV. So there's, these huge satellite projects that are going on, but his job was very much just him being there and people could kind of like go to him and he would make things better, like by problem solving and just helping them work out glitches at all different stages. And like, I see you as that very clearly. Like I'm so, when I capture you and put you in my apartment or studio or wherever I want you to be. And like, I, I love it. I love watching you just like pick up things and you're like, like even for this podcast, like you made our audio sound so good. Like that would never happen with me. Like, and then Corey, like you have Kari. this, you have this like Kari, you have this, um, this insatiable, like you've, you've, you're someone that's thought about how to be selfless with your talent for being articulate and inquisitive. And I just feel so washed over when you ask me a question about me. It's like, Oh yeah, I want to tell this guy because I find that zest that you have for me to talk about, you know, my upbringing. Well, game recognizes so. game, Jason. I think you're zesty. Yeah. Yeah. I try and be more spicy sometimes. And I and did watch that, that interview to Portland where you're asking cab drivers what they think about love. And <laughs> so, no, like I said, birds of a feather, man. No, I like, I <laughs> thank you for the kind words. Uh, and I appreciate what you're doing as well. Nice. So the the woman that I interviewed that I went to Portland with, she said something really nice to me. She said, I am grateful for the work that you're doing in this world. And I thought it was cheesy when she said it, but when I was editing it like 45 times over and still like failing on certain elements of it, I was like, yeah, this is work. And it was nice of her to see me. But oh, anyhow, um, the childhood, I, I think I'm just like stumbling and diverting from talking about myself for some reason but the childhood that i grew up in is extremely complicated the like something that you said about how you, you can define the whole species as trying to accumulate and concentrate and distribute like it's a lot about power so there's certain lenses that you could put on the experiences that i had and you can paint it with different colors and it's difficult to go just like neutral mm. with so much baggage but and not just my own personal baggage but like what the world has to say about my own 
people and experience. Mm. So, but I had a very blessed life. I have grandparents that immigrated here from Eastern Europe countries when they were teenagers, their families were relocated to ghettos and then they were relocated on trains to slave labor camps in Nazi Germany. And yeah, my grandmother had a few weeks in Auschwitz and my grandfather had I don't know exactly, but a substantial amount of time in Matthausen, which is a death camp, you know. And then they got nifty and kind of surfed trains and borrowed and worked a little and then moved to New York and then they ended up in Los Angeles. And yeah, and then my dad was born here. He met my mom. She's a British woman. And my grandfather was a butcher when he got to New York and the butcher said, Hey, do you want to marry my daughter? If you marry my daughter, I'll make you a 50, 50 partner in my butcher shop. And he was like, nah, I'm good. And then he went on vacation. and met my grandmother in LA. Um, and he proposed to her on the first date, which is, or the second date, which is really cute. And they were, he was a butcher when he came to LA, he opened his own little shop. He did that for like, a decade or two or a decade and a half. And then he scrimped and saved and invested with his brother-in-law and other brother. And they bought a old age home because that's what their friends were getting into as a business. And then they bought a couple more and I was born in this lap of luxury that I absolutely took for granted because you don't know any better. And I was in this private school with 20 kids who 10 of the kids, they're the rabbi's sons in the community, and the other 10 are just like even wealthier than you can possibly imagine. Hmm. Because, like, my dad would tell me, Oh, you know, our, our family, we're pretty comfortable, but we only have like four old age homes, you know. But, like, that kid's dad has like 175. And I'd be like, Holy Jeez, cow, that's please. yeah, I'd be like, That's nuts. And it's like the same story, too. It's this like Eastern European immigrant patriarch. And my grandmother actually had a lot in the business. Like she, once they had excess capital, she was controlling the investments. It wasn't crazy money, but it was like nifty investments. And like they tried doing coffee bean or a perfume with Swarovski or, you know, like they, they got into it. They did some stuff and it was her. She was driving it. Like he was a workhorse, but she was the brains. And so they would like donate money to schools and they worked really hard the the overarching component also is that they're they're orthodox jews and as are as are my family and they're ultra orthodox so colloquially that would be like hasidic they we don't look ultra orthodox and there's a whole contingent of people that are like this you if you meet my dad you just think okay this guy wears a kippa but otherwise he's like a white american business guy but that's not how he sees himself, and that's not how, yeah, that's not how he sees himself. Um, I don't necessarily want to talk. I don't need to talk about it in connection with my dad. It's kind of a general. It's kind of a general hmm. thing. But maybe sticking to reporting on the facts of myself will be more fruitful. So I was in this um, private school, like I said, with twenty kids. But what we did is completely abnormal. 
I would wake up at seven o'clock in the morning to get to prayers at seven thirty. This is for my, you know, since from seventh grade to thirteenth grade. Okay. Um, and then you study Torah till like one p.m. in the afternoon. And then you study like uh, math, history, and some other rudimentary macro subject like vocabulary or something and then you go back at 4 p.m and you're studying talmud again you go home for dinner and then you you go back and study into the night until like 10 p.m or 11 p.m and then i went to israel to study torah um in jerusalem uh talmud and then i went to yeshiva i guess it's important to stop and just appreciate how how lucky I was to have everything that I had, the community, the ritualized familiarity the that support. you get from high school. Yeah. What? The support. The, the support. Mm-hmm. And all of that that you kind of feel as a kid, it kind of never goes away when you're raised in that community because you always have that network. You really do. You don't necessarily interact with them like you did as kids, but they're a phone call away. Hmm. And they're there for you, and it's it's an extremely vast network. So if I go to a, a camp or a yeshiva in another country, by virtue of them looking at me and seeing the type of yarmulke that I wear and the ability for me to throw in certain Jewish like code-switching words or or not code switching, but just like certain vernacular, like that dials me into just 98% of acceptance by this other human being. Cause they understand that, wow, this person keeps Shabbat. This person learned Talmud. This person has this type of like moral compass or, un- and understands my world too. So it's like, you just have this, you're like blood brothers with this like person that you've never met at all. And because of how uniform that world is, um, and then my dad paid for my college cause that was really important. It's like, yeah, you're really either going to become a rabbi or you're a, you're a doctor or accountant. Like the, what else is there in life? Hmm. And, and then I, uh, I went to law school and, um, in law school, I kind of got rid of wearing a kippah and assimilated myself inside but i really i really didn't have i was so inarticulate to become friends with people that weren't an orthodox jewish person because i never got intimate in any shape way or substantive form with another person that wasn't completely who i'm describing in that bubble so it was very strange for me to try and form genuine experiences with these people and i see how i'm saying like these people like just people like I couldn't fathom that they're worthwhile. And it's interesting because it bleeds past religion. It bleeds past being Jewish because I couldn't accept Moshe, my friend, mm. as this person, despite how, and my parents like don't like him. <laughs> you know, because Still to yes. the day? <laughs> what? Still to the day? It's, oh, you know, they've all, I'm only been friends with him now for like a year, but and wow. they've only met him a few times. They're lost. They can't, He's they, yeah, they're lost. He's amazing. He's amazing. But 
it's 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 an acquired taste if you're not you know if you're in that sort of paradigm of of life mm. and and which i was and so when i met this guy oh, I, I, thought, I thought they warmed up to me they still don't like me <laughs> yeah they still don't like you they don't yeah. understand right yeah that's okay well, we're just on different wavelengths it's fine yeah they're good people i like you it was sir. a good it, it was a good story you told jason but i want to tell you jason the story that kari told me probably a few years into our friendship um this epiphany he had uh maybe you could correct me on the details but it was something like you were you were at a resort for a friend's wedding there was something where you were at a fancier fancy place than you usually hang out in and you had a day off and you were just like leisurely sleeping in a bit taking a shower and you had this epiphany that rich people don't hate poor people they're just not even thinking about it they're just enjoying the luxuries that they could have that i don't know if you remember that but that that was kind of sh a shocking thing to me a shocking epiphany for you, someone to have you remembered and retold that story with incredible accuracy i'm so honored that you remembered it that well uh it was exactly that i was on a retreat with some friends uh whose parents had money and it was after a long day of, you know, like you said, sleeping in and then bagels and then hanging out by the pool and then lunch and then, you know, whatever we want more by the pool. And then I was getting a shower because we were on our way to a really nice dinner uh, and just the time had absolutely flown by. And so I, I found myself in the shower at like 6 p.m. The sun's going down and I just went, man, where did the day go? You know, and then I'm in this incredible shower and just life's incredibly busy. And yes, that was the exact epiphany I had, which was that this is how the other half live. It's not like they're going, oh, keep the poorest poor. Uh, they're just living incredible lives. They're thinking about going skiing and what they're going to do next year and da -da -da, stuff like that. They're just evaluating their options and executing them. Uh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. So I, I, I grew up, uh, you know, I'm a, I, so I guess, I guess this, I guess this contrasts with your upbringing a bit, Jason. I'm an only child from Compton born in 1984. When I was 12, I was going to be a fruit town Piru and there was nothing my mom could do about it. That's, that's where I grew up. Uh, you know, there was police tape on my block, uh, every other week, at least for two years. Um, yeah, yeah, and so the way I viewed the world as a as a young twelve year old was you could either join a gang and be respected, uh, or you could work some nine to five and be a chump, or you could just get robbed because that was basically it. Either you were you were a banger or you were some chump and got robbed. That, 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 those are those are your options, uh, you know. Now, fortunately. Uh, my mom moved me out to Covina with my stepdad. And so instead of becoming a gangbanger, I became a pothead, which is a degree, whole degree better, uh, I would argue. And then I became a pothead. Uh, and then from pothead, I became sort of interested in academics because I had uh, some, some nice girlfriends in high school. But but no, I came from the and I'll tell you this. The people in the hood talk about rich people all the time, all the time. Right. We're always talking about what they go. They got they go. Do, 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 they got they got blah, 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 all the time. So uh, and that was where I came up. That was where I came up. So I had to, you know, I had to learn. And, and one epiphany I had about race relations coming out of that that upbringing was when I was in Compton, 
I saw five white people in my entire life by the time I was 12. Uh, and one of them was my mom's friend. Another one was, you know, walking up the street and I never seen him again. A couple other ones might've been, you know, oh, there was one white kid that came to my school one time and we, and I shouldn't say we, they picked on him incessantly. He was picked on. I did not pick on that kid. I was a bully at one point, but it was to this specific other black kid. It wasn't, I didn't, I didn't pick on the white kid just cause he was white, but the white kid got picked on because he was white for sure. Uh, at McNair, um, and that was my experience. But when we moved to Covina, I had a white neighbor uh, and my stepdad would wave to him. My stepdad was black. And so he would wave to him and that guy would wave back. And there were times where I would stand on the fence or lean on the fence. And I would talk to my neighbor guy about uh, Bob Lazar and aliens. And <laughs> he was into all sorts of cool stuff. And I said, oh, it was then I learned when I was 13 years old that white people are just like black people. That we all just want the same thing, right? A safe place Damn. to raise our kids. Damn. That's fascinating. It's the whole other almost like a cult. Like how I feel like, oh, I was brought up in a cult. It's like the ghetto or whatever you were from is that seems cultish. Like they're always talking about hierarchy yep. or Yeah, I would call it I would call it the hood, right? I would say the hood has this and there's there's a certain hood mentality. Uh, that exist, uh, you know, I've I've argued uh, too much controversy in, in black circles that the largest and biggest problem facing black Americans today is the the hood mentality. Right. It's not overt outward racism. Now, that's not to say that overt outward racism isn't a problem. Still, it is a problem in a lot of areas, because keep in mind, the people that insisted that they wouldn't share lunch counters with blacks are still around largely. So, you know, we're, we're getting past that area, uh, but we aren't fully past it, but you can look at the evidence, right? So the average wealth of, uh, of a black person that's a descendant of slaves in America is one tenth that of an average white American. But when you look, when you, when you group all black Americans together, you, you kind of get that number. But if you separate out the recent black immigrants. So these are people who came over from, you know, from dark countries, dark skinned countries after slavery and who, you know, people who came over from, uh, you know, Ethiopia or, you know, wherever, right. Angola, wherever they came from, uh, then they do on par with white Americans, Asian Americans, other, other groups, they do on par with other groups, but it's the descendants of black slaves. And I like the hashtag BDOS, right? So it's the black descendants of slaves that have this internal self-doubt, right? It's us that keeps us from participating. And we keep, we lock ourselves out before we even try. Uh, an example I can give, I drove ride, I drove ride share for 14 months. Uh, and there was a guy that I met he got in my car and he was wearing a suit. Now, this is a white guy in his late 20s. Uh, he got in my car, he was wearing a suit, uh, and I was taking him somewhere in L.A. And I said, you know, as, as a cabbie does, hey, where are you from? What do you do? Da, 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 da. He said, well, I was a waiter at this restaurant uh, a while ago. This is like seven years ago, right? Or, you know, he was telling the story. He was saying like seven years ago, I was a waiter in this restaurant and I had this regular who kind of took a liking to me. And we developed a rapport and he said, hey, man, come work for me. You know, I'll give you a shot. You, you've got a nice way with people. I'll give you a shot as a salesman. Uh, and he said he left that waiter job, went to this entry level sales position and over seven years had worked his way up to a regional sales manager. Right. 
Uh, this was white guy. Like I said, white guy, late twenties, maybe a month later, six weeks later. I don't know. I'm in the car with a black kid who I'm picking up from Compton. Uh, and I'm driving them out to LA to this French restaurant. And I said, Hey man, I said, is this a fancy restaurant I'm taking you to? He said, I can't afford to eat there. <laughs> I said, Oh man. So you've got all sorts of opportunities to rub elbows with people who can, you know, improve your network and you can really get out there and make some things happen. He said, nah, I said, what do you mean? He said, nah, not for me, man. So that's what's holding black America. That's the largest thing. That's holding black Americans today uh, back today. Not the only thing, but that's the largest thing is we have an internalized self-doubt from the years, decades of lynchings and burnings and, and horrible depictions on mass media. All that stuff got internalized. You know, you can't just look at every single dark skinned person on television and movies acting a buffoon and not internalize a little bit of that. Right. Uh, and so that that's the culture we're in. That's the culture I came up in. Uh, and I had to learn through personal relations like you alluded to. And I think that was a very beautiful thing. It takes personal relationships in which you care about people that are outside of your group to understand that your group doesn't have a monopoly on truth. Oh, that's such a nice little bow you, you wrapped at the end. Something else that you said was really beautiful was that you're get some nice girlfriends. So you got into academics. What did you mean by that? Well, so I get to tell this story. Well, can uh, I? No, no, no. Jump in. Mush it. Mush it. Jump in. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're, uh, the description of that sort of mentality uh, that exists in the black community, mm. I feel like it contrasts so much to how white people view black people view themselves. Like, if you think of Denzel Washington or Will Smith or Oprah, like, I, I feel like there's this sort of confidence and bravado that like uh that's how white i think white people view the default black view of themselves well overconfidence not 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 that sort of doubt sure, and like oh sure sure it's fair to say and it's probably important to point out that we are talking about the fringes a little bit here uh because from what i understand it the, that it's that something like is it 12% of black Americans exist or live below the poverty line, whereas it's 8% of whites or it's like 16% and, and 12% for blacks. It's, it's, so there's, a, you know, that is to say, no, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's eight, it's 12 and eight, because that means 88% of black people are in the middle class or are in the middle class or above, whereas 92% of white people are in the middle class or above. Right. So we're, it's not like we're talking to, when I'm talking about the black people that are affected by the hood mentality, holding them back. I am not talking about most black people. Uh, generally, I am talking about most troubled black people. So when you look at Chicago and you look at Compton and you look at Detroit and you look at these areas where you go, what's wrong? Why do these, why do these dudes keep shooting each other? Right. That's what I'm talking about, because that's the culture I came up in. And so that so that's where my heart is. Right. Why does that I feel like that view. Like, I, I think the first time I heard that statistic that you just mentioned, uh, I was a bit shocked because I feel like the discourse around black America is more like that fringe is seen as the dominant and the the black person who's just like middle class living in a regular I shouldn't say regular, but uh, middle class living in middle class neighborhood yep. with a bunch of white neighbors and 
just, you know, what some people would say, oh, he's whitewashed or just throwing it in with whitey or something. Yeah. Uh, that's probably just the dominant, you know, mode. But but those figures can also be understood in relationship with uh, the fact that black wealth is one tenth of white wealth. So even when you see a black family living in the house, and I, and I think this this picture was painted uh, in a book that I read. I can't remember the name of the author, but it was that. So when you see a black family of four living in, let's say, a three bedroom single family home, and then they have a neighbors that are white family of four living in a three bedroom single family home, literally neighbors and their houses, let's say are worth exactly the same amount. What, what you're looking at, if you, if you average it out is you're looking at a black family with no savings, some amount of credit card debt and who's living check to check. And then that white family has significant savings, maybe a year or more with income, with disposable income uh, that they choose not to spend there. So the white family is actually living below their means, whereas the black family has stretched their means. But from the outside, they have the same appearance. Right. And so that's and we have to reckon with that. Right. Because black people, black, um, black descendants of slaves don't have generational wealth. Right. They burnt our generational wealth in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, so we still have to have to come to terms with that. You think that uh, living over your means, I mean, to me, it sounds like just a variation of the hood mentality you're describing where you care about outward appearances, how you appear, how wealthy you are. Is that guy, what's he doing? How is he making money? That sort of thing. I would, I would put a distinction there. I would say that, that white culture and this is what i learned i have i have a whole host of white friends and i've been the token on several occasions right and so i've spent a lot of time learning the difference uh some of the contrast points between black culture and white culture and white culture has in it a a um, transmission of personal financial responsibility uh i've got a buddy who's got like a hundred thousand dollars in available credit and his his balance is never ever over like five grand if that it's usually like three or four right that's the balance he carries is like three percent of his available credit and it's a hundred thousand dollars so whereas you know i don't know any black families that live like well i do know one black person that lives like that from the many black people that i know and so that knowledge of personal financial literacy everything i know about for instance trading stocks i learned from my white friends uh so so uh, financial literacy generally is kind of passed around inside of white families uh, where parents teach their kids and friends teach each other and da, 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 which is I'm not knocking I'm not saying that's a bad thing that's a terrific thing but that just doesn't happen in black culture uh, and so that you know it, it doesn't happen we don't teach financial literacy in public schools like I think we should um, and so that's why and so that I want to separate that family living above their means from and that's just lack of financial literacy right that's what that is that's just a middle class family that doesn't have financial literacy so they're pushing their credit cards up to 80 90 going it'll be okay no that's that's just you just don't know how to handle money that's different than hood mentality so hood mentality is the constant incessant counting yourself out before you even give yourself a shot like that dude in the car that dude in the car 
who I took him to that fancy French restaurant. He had the world in front of him. He was like 19 or 20. So he could do literally anything. The, the world was his oyster. But I said, but I said, why don't you make something? He goes, nah, not for me. Not for me. That's hood mentality. And so, and that's the mentality that I came up with. And so that's what I rail against. And that's also the mentality that feeds into this recursive cycle of, of, um, black, of disproportionate black violence. But that is not the the major factor in the the wealth gap, right? The wealth gap is much more uh, large scale and, and sociological and historical than than just the hood mentality. How did you break out of that? Uh, great parenting, good friends, um, mo- mostly mostly my family. So I actually come from a family that exists in. Contrapoint to the legacy of NWA. There's actually a, a video clip of this news channel interviewing my grandfather against NWA. So they had a clip of Ice Cube and MC Ren and Dre, and they're talking about, yeah, we're from Compton and in Compton, you gotta do this to survive. Right? They're talking about how tough they are and how they carry guns and shoot each other, whatever. And then uh, the news cuts to a clip of my grandpa. And he says, these young men do not represent the city of Compton, <laughs> which they didn't. Uh, he says, Compton is a class of proud working class Christian or no, he didn't say Christian, but he said a, a city of crowd, proud working class people. That's that's the city of Compton, which it was right. The gangs represented like five percent, if that of the teenage population when NWA was first sign their record label it wasn't until nwa was popularized that young men in our hood started to shoot each other right the gangs came after nwa not the reverse uh and so so yeah that nwa the rap group yeah the rap group yeah um that's that and so that's why i'm not i didn't get and but like i said even at 12 i was fully going into the gang life uh and so the only reason i made it out was mostly because my mom moved me out of the hood uh, moving to somewhere where there was no gangs to join. Uh, how was how was NWA? Sorry, maybe I just how was NWA so influential? Well, like you know, it was just everyone was everyone was listening to them. Not only that, everyone was listening to them. So one of the things that it was one they were getting money, uh, and then they were around the hood showing off their money, buying drugs from the local dealers, throwing parties, having, you know, throwing beer around and something that uh was Ice Cube from this group? Ice Cube no. was from this group, yes. Um and so you you so you saw what them ride around in Cadillacs or something? Like what are you what are you I, describing? I did not so I I was too young to see NWA. I was born in 84. They were going around like 89. So I was like 5, right? So I didn't really see NWA in their time cruising around and so i have learned this through history but i certainly saw the 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 blood crip, blood crip gangs of the early 90s so 92 93 94 that i saw up close right when dudes were shooting each other over nikes i had a cousin who was uh a blood and he had to walk to school and he had to pass these crips every day and but he had to pass by himself and so every day they would say what's up cuz uh, and he wouldn't say anything because he was a blood, but he wouldn't say he wouldn't say back. What's up, blood? I'm a blood. You know, he wouldn't he wouldn't make it on site as soon as he walked on because he had to go to school. But then they saw him in the McDonald's with his homies uh, and they put a bullet in his heart and he was dead before he hit the ground. Right. And so that I saw that firsthand. But N.W.A. 
one thing that you were at that McDonald's. I wasn't at. I I I didn't see the murder firsthand. Uh, But I was. I remember when my family told me that Dewan died. mm -hmm. Right, and so Mm -hmm. I was sad. Uh, And what? And what? And they killed him because he disrespected them. No, no, they just saw he was a blood, and they said, "Oh, you're just walking through our hood every day. You're a blood. We're gonna shoot you." Uh, But one thing that Easy E was doing was rather than just just promote his album, their album in a normal way. Easy E would go up to gang members and say, show up to me with, you know, five hundred dollars worth of receipts for my CD and I will give you five hundred dollars worth of guns. Easy E did that. So they were putting guns on our streets are encouraging the teen populace to arm themselves and be gangs and be gang members and shoot each other as a way of getting rich and getting famous and earning clout. Right. Um, the, the so world of power. Where, where, where was this? In Compton. You're uh, telling me that rappers, what they were able to exchange. So they were selling guns. He was, yeah, he was selling, he was selling guns, but rather than just taking the money, he was saying, show up with $500 worth of receipts for my album or a thousand, buy a thousand dollars worth of copies of this album. And I will give you a thousand dollars worth of guns. And, and so there was that phenomenon, but also it cannot be denied that there were non-black, non-hood, just other people outside. So, so white, you know, you can read white or Hispanic or Asian, just other people that weren't just these people listening to their albums, right? Because they're, they were going platinum. Um, and so, the, but you know, that image of the black gangster, you know, I can't emphasize enough was popularized, it wasn't popular. It was popularized. Uh, and after it was popularized, then in the era of Tupac and Biggie, yeah, at that point it was popular, but it was made popular. Uh, it, was, it didn't just, it didn't grow organically. And N- NWA was a, a big part of that. Before, look, listen to the, listen to the rap. Before NWA, it was KRS. It was, it was public enemy. Right. It was it was hip hop. Hip hop was an ex- was the continuation of jazz. Uh, hip hop was about love and happiness. And we're everyday people. Right. That That's what hip hop was before gangster rap, before N.W.A., before gangsters. That's what hip hop was. So how do you explain that shift? Um, the, the love of money. Right. So some some producers saw that these gangster rappers uh could be sold as a product that might be popular. And you know what? They were right, right? People seem to resonate. And by resonate, I mean, they went out and they bought the music. They went out and they bought the CDs uh, and they, and they paid tickets to go see these dudes, right? They, so that they went out to see these black gangsters being gangsters. And so young black kids learned if I wanted to get money, I needed to be a gangster. And so then that just and it was a, it was a, a self kind of feeding cycle with the rappers being gangsters and then the dealers in the hoods actually being the ones with money. By the time I came around, like I said earlier, that was the only way that I saw to be a legitimate moneymaker. Right now, my idea of legitimacy as 12 years old was idiotic, but that was still how I felt. Yeah fascinating and scary and tragic and completely yeah like you said in contrast to the world i grew up in i mean 
the world I grew up in, the only common thing that you said was that if you're working a nine to five, you're a chump. Interesting. Yeah. Unless, (laughs) unless you're like, meaning the nine to five, I imagine that we're talking about is not like a lawyer. No, like the nine to five is like a guy that manages like a home Depot. Yeah. You know, nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's that, that we could have agreed on, but it was never an option to even be that you had to be like 10 X that. But yeah, the question is what, what behavior in a man do young men see as the path of the admirable man, right? So when I was 12, the path of the admirable man in my mind was a gun-toting gang member. That was how mm. to be admirable in my mind. Mm. What, what was your dad? Absent. Mm. Which is a, another big problem that affects the black community. I'm I'm a good a good example of. You know he's so, he's around now, and you know I, I tell him I love him on the phone, and I do love you, and I do love him. You know I love I love my dad in as much as he's a human being, and and he's my father, he's my biological father, and and I love him for that. But uh, you know I'm scarred by his absence, absolutely scarred, um, and I don't I don't think I'll ever get over it. What What do you mean? Like, I say that in the sense, I guess I have no idea what you're talking about. So I'm asking you, like, literally what you mean. Yeah. And the articulate something, it's like the friend of mine whose father passed away. Hmm. Like, you have to move on. Like, what do you mean you'll never move on from that? Well, what I mean is that the, the you know, for me... It, it manifested in I there was a point in my life in which I thought my dad wasn't around simply because he didn't think I was worth being raised. And so that when if to have that, quote unquote, realization at like seven years old that your dad's not around because you're not worth it. Does that ever go away? I don't know. I don't think that I don't think that's ever going to go away, that that feeling of that pain. And so that's what I mean by. But I don't know that, you know, like I said, I talk to him on the phone. I tell him I love him. And, uh, you know, he can I, I told him I pick him up from the airport. If every flew out to Los Angeles, I'm not going to let him crash on my couch. He can figure something else out. But uh, yeah, so we so we always have we still have to the day that relationship. Right. It doesn't just go away. Um, yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know what it would take to go away. He'd, he'd have to jump through some hoops, man. Some major hoops. But uh, no, abs- you're, absentee you're making me. Stuff. You're making me realize I got to call my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I got to call him. Yeah. If you had a dad in the home who raised you and hugged you and told you that he loved you, yeah, give him a call. He didn't tell me he loved me enough. Okay. But that is far from being absent. He was very much present. And I, I know from his upbringing that he was present in as much as he was able to be present. And Mm. it's just so hard because it's like, I guess you have this debt with your dad where you have all the moral high ground to act however you want. And I don't have that in a way. I don't, not, I don't have that at all. I do not have the moral high ground with my father. Because as Nipsey Hussle said last time that I checked, there was no smut on my rep. That is that guy. Okay, he has nothing. I mean, just clean as a whistle and practices what he preaches. But uh, it's really hard to just be subservient to give time when you're not going to be loved unconditionally. 
Yeah, yeah, uh, but I, I wouldn't describe it as as moral high ground. Uh, I would just describe it as you know as, as a as a parent when you bring I would argue when you bring a child into this world, you have now created for yourself a sacred responsibility, uh, and if you abscond from that responsibility, you know what do you expect, right? So um, I, I wouldn't call it moral high ground as much as just. You know, the we, we would have to it's, it's kind of like a broken relationship, right, um, where, you know, to the, the parent child relationship ideally would be more or less healthy from birth. Right. And then stay more or less healthy until one of you die. Right. I, you know, in, in common practice, you hope you hope it's the parent first. Right. If it's a child first, that's truly tragic. Uh, and then that's just how, how it should go. But if that relationship is broken, you know, in the way that, you know, in the way my dad was, my dad was never around. Literally he showed up on like my fourth birthday, you know, when I had surgery, uh, again, when I was 10 and then, you know, maybe one more time, maybe I've, I've been in a room literally with my dad, like five times in my life. So how do you, you know, and to me, the burden, the the main burden of mending that relationship is in his court, and I'm just not mature enough yet to take it on into my court. Uh, maybe one day I will, you know, uh, but not there at the moment. Yeah, and so I wouldn't call it high ground, but I would say the direction of the debt, right? And so that that's kind of synonymous with with what you're saying, high ground. I just wouldn't use that phrase more high ground, but the sentiment I think would when saying that he owes me, I don't know him. He owes me. Yeah. A thousand percent. It's like this to depersonalize it. <clears throat> this this guy had, like you said, a responsibility or just the the choices that he made. You know, why should you want to have any relationship with this person? Yeah. That's uh, tough. Well, you said you said when you were seven or around there, you kind of felt like maybe he doesn't want to be around because I'm not worth it for whatever reason. How did, how did those thoughts evolve? Like, you know, you must've realized that probably wasn't it at some point you realized that's, that wasn't it. It wasn't anything to do with me. It was just, he had his own stuff and, you know, I just happened to come along and interfere with it. Sure. Sure. Well, as a, as an adult, uh, and this is largely after, uh, largely after UCLA, uh, you know, I started getting on the phone with them more and we've had, uh, you know, we've had hundreds of hours of phone conversations. So, you know, my dad is, my dad is a regular part of my life. As far as people that I talk to on the phone now, I'm, I'm grateful and happy to say, um, I still haven't been in the same room with them, but you know, we talk all the time. Uh, and I've just learned about him as a man, right? I learned about, about what his relationship was with my mom and, and, you know, and I've and I've asked my mom her side of the story and heard his. And so I've just learned his experience as, as a man, you know, and I give him uh, the full respect of just being a flawed human as we all are. Right. And so and so, yeah, that, 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 that's how it's changed. And also I learned that, you know, I guess I say that to say I learned that he wasn't it, he wasn't not around because he didn't think I was worth raising. Uh, he wasn't around because he was an irresponsible man. <laughs> <laughs> who didn't take care of his responsibilities, namely uh, his his boys. So, that, hey, I'm not perfectly responsible either. So I'm not I'm not throwing stones at the dude. But it'll be a while before we're before we're buddy buddy. So can you do the 
girlfriend academic connection? Sure. So uh, I was in geometry. Before that, Mm -hmm. I want (laughs) to... Um, another, another, I just want to bring in another story that stands out in my head that you told me. Um, I think you were talking about the time you had a major epiphany that you could be wrong about something. You were like in line at a McDonald's or some fast food and (laughs) you said something and the person you were with said, no, that's not true. And then wait a minute, it ended up. No, I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know. I don't know about that part. I thought you were talking about one story, but then now I don't know what you're talking well, about. Well, what, what was the story that you thought I was? Uh, the line of the McDonald's was a, was a thing about race. Is that what you were thinking of? Um, maybe. What, what was probably, it? You know? Probably. I learned in San Francisco that, uh, you know, there's a difference between culture and race, right? So I was in line at McDonald's and I heard this dude talking. Uh, now, the dude was behind me, so I couldn't see him. Uh, but I could tell by the way he was talking, he was saying, yeah, man, you know, we going we gonna to shoot over there to the, we going to shoot over there to the crib, have some barbecue, you know, you know how it goes when we, you know, so I could tell by the way he was talking and he was a black guy. Uh, his voice was very deep and he was saying, yeah, man, you know how it goes, just, just crushing the punch or whatever phrase, I don't know, he was, but you could tell by, by this manner of speaking that he was a black guy. And when I turned around, he was as blonde haired and blue eyed as anyone you'll ever see. Uh... And I said, wow. So <laughs> that lets you know that there's a difference between culture and race. Uh, skin color is not your culture. That's it. That's the, yeah, that is the story. But I remember you telling it to me. I think it was it, it was in the context of how when you were younger, you were more certain that the way that you viewed things w- w- was the way that it was. But that instance where like you had in your head an image of what this person behind you looked like. And then in reality, it was something completely different. And you realize that there could be that disconnect. I don't know. Maybe I'm. Well, you know what? I No, no, no. I think you're remembering correctly, but I think you're touching on, uh, you know, when, when that was, because that was, you know, you, you, we all interpret the world through our lens. So that was, that was part of the, that's certainly part of the story, but that's part of the story that, that you took away. And I think that's great. Now that is a true part of the story that, I mean, for me, it was just really more, Skin is not culture, right? Skin is not accent. Uh, culture is culture. Accent is accent. And skin is skin. Uh, they they exist on independent axes. Can you break that down for me? The difference of what how you usually talk and then this like almost other language, like what Moshe was saying before about how Denzel Washington and Oprah, we think about a certain like bravado. It's that swagger, that Ebonics, I guess that white guy, like... There was this podcast with Shia LaBeouf and uh, mm. John Bernthal, mm. and I couldn't listen to more than sixty seconds of it because it was two white guys talking like two black guys, and it was just <laughs> it was just so disturbing to me. But if the same conversation would have been like Fifty Cent interviewing Jay Z, yeah. I would have been like, "Hell yeah, I want to yeah. hear this," you know. Interesting. So, I'm gonna have what, to go what, look that up. Shia, LaBeouf, I'm gonna make sure that's on my YouTube history right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really, I couldn't get past a minute of it. And my friend was like, you got to listen to it. It made me cry. And I was like, no, not for me. They're both like, you know, I guess I don't want to do that sort of impression. I want to have a conversation about what that is. Like, as a Jewish kid, I have that ability. There's a certain, like, Jewish twang that I could put on, like I was alluding to before. But mm-hmm. what does it mean? What does it mean to you? And because you sound like Obama. 
like when you're Thank you. being yeah when you're well yeah he's cool when you're being like authoritative and laying something down and then you just switch into like yeah you'd be crushing a bunch and i'm like oh yeah. that's yeah like yeah. that kid that was like disenfranchised that was going to the restaurant like never disenfranchised i didn't i never said that the kid the kid the yeah, kid yeah, the yeah. kid that, that was going to that yeah or whatever he was you know and uh, self-doubt just, is the phrase yeah self-doubt self-doubt yeah not okay. that he wasn't allowed to vote uh but that he just might not have drawn himself to the booth uh, for one reason or another that's the thing about jewish people it's like the lack of self-doubt that i've given and it's not connected maybe to all jews and it is definitely unique to like my experience but the reality was raised that way you weren't raised that way right no how are you raised Moshe? well i want jason to finish his thought if you remember Um, no i do it's it's the level of certainty that everything you're doing is for a purpose that we know it's Mm. a purpose that we've defined you are going to succeed because god is on your side god Mm. chose you to do this and look everyone around you like the base level of life is just so apparently Mm. good and that's all you see so it's the complete opposite of that i had Mm. a way hyper inflated sense of lack of doubt uh you know selfish self-assuredness as opposed to Mm self-doubt yeah self-assuredness like i you know not i I, my safety net was very obvious to me like there was nothing i was going to do that would actually ever get me into trouble like i could always get out of anything because Mm. yeah but i'm curious what i I think i have the same i I think like in that respect i think i have the same uh confidence or lack of self-doubt like i given my family and 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 how close i am and and the resources that they have i don't i kind of feel like no matter what i do you know everything will be fine at the end of the day so i think that has afforded me a lot of freedom to sort of explore as Kari was saying before, like explore myself instead of the path which was expected of me. I've been sort of going on a long winding journey and um, if I meet a classmate of mine uh, from high school, I I even though intellectually I, I, I like my lifestyle and, and I'm happy, but if I meet them, all of a sudden I just feel judged. Like I'm not doing what I should be doing. Oh, I was the top of my class at this high school. Everybody before and after me who's the top of my class from that high school is in some great position in some company or it's like done, Ben you know, Shapiro so- or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, like literally Ben Shapiro. But, yeah, not to. But- Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to say like, but personally, so so that feeling like no matter what I do, my parents love me and no matter what I do, there's a safety net. Still, there's that, that doubt, but that also influences my uh, ability to produce stuff because I'll start writing and I'll write. A little bit and i'll say wow this this is fun i want to do this i want to express myself that way and people 
my friends and family will respond positively to it. And then I'll just hit a wall where it's just like, I'm not good enough to, to do this or this isn't. Yeah. You're being that kid on the way to the restaurant. Yeah. It's not for me. It's not Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. I I would say that. That's why when you said, he said, it's not for me. I, I think I, I don't know the context of the conversation, what came before and after, but if, if, in that context, if I was in the car and I was going to that fancy place and you were saying, oh, why don't you network and, and do this and that? And I would say, no, that's not for me. But probably not for the same reasons he would mm. say. But, um, Well, I don't you know, know. You're, a, you're a curious person, Moishi. So I think that, that your journey into the not for me was one of you had this path uh, kind of these options, these pre prescribed options and paths illuminated for you and, and articulated for you and detailed and, and people were facilitating your movement down those paths. And you said, well, maybe I don't want any of these things that are prescribed for me. And so you're doing kind of a conscious rejection of what the world might have you be in favor of what you want yourself to be in search of what you want yourself to be. Uh, whereas this kid uh, and I can speak, you know, because I was in the same side of the bubble as him. This kid was shutting the world out because he didn't think on a deep level. He wouldn't have articulated this way, but this is what it is, because he didn't think he was worthy of the rest of the world. He just thought he, he just he just considers himself a little bit less than the rest of the world and just is willing to let the rest of the world go over his head. That's fine. You know, that's is it. That's where that self doubt is. Yeah, it's less. Is it less? It, it could be more, too. He could say no, that's for white people. I don't do that stuff. Uh, see, and here's here's why I say it's less. Uh, now, of course, they'll all get they'll get mad at you if you say oh, I don't think I'm less. Here's why it's less. You're talking about controlling a block. You're talking about you know, con- you're talking about making a couple thousand dollars uh, a day, right? Uh, you know, you're talking about maybe making a hundred k slanging on the streets. Those are small numbers, man. Those are small numbers. Uh, and so that's why, you know, I like, uh, this part about Jay-Z is that he has broken at least those numbers, right? So that the dudes that would have, you know, limited themselves to minor drug capers, uh, now will go, well, we are part of the, we are part of the crew. We are part of the, the lineage that can go into the billion status, right? Uh, and and I feel like Jay Z and Puffy and the the so rap has evolved and and broken young people to know that they can be billionaires if you apply yourself. Um, Jason has yeah. a funny bit about that that he's probably <laughs> waiting to say. I would sit on it in favor of hearing more about you relating to that kid in the car. I want to hear your Jay Z. <laughs> Because you don't want to talk about vulnerability uh, stuff and learning to yourself, but maybe not. Maybe my Jay Z bit is so funny. Um, I want to hear the Jay Z bit. No, my rela- my relation to the, it- my relation to the kid in the car is just that I understood where he was coming from because I was once there. That's it. I I guess I was talking to Moshe. Like, what were you? You you said that you you felt like there was some juxtaposition between you and that kid. Just just that I was once where he was, right? A kid from Compton who didn't think that, you know, didn't didn't think that what the world was preparing for itself, that it was preparing for him, right? He he was disincluding himself in the rest of the world, voluntarily disincluding himself from the rest of the world. That's that's the hood mentality, part of the hood mentality. 
Well, well yeah. So Jay Z? No. There's oh. no bit. It's it's just the observation. Mm. There's a song by Jay Z called Imaginary Players. And okay. in the song he's getting into the nuances of why he's better than the other guy. And it's because his Range Rover is a 4.7 Range Rover and the other guy's a 4.0 Range Rover. And you're like, oh, what's the difference between that? 60K, mofo. Mm. And then I just, it clicked this pattern of his that he has where so much of his music is either about like good times or about very specific number aspirations and Mm. how he's going to do it and he's just rapping all along like almost like he's coming out of business meetings like writing the raps right then you know he's like yeah just sign a contract you know and like it's very granular it's big money talk can you answer me mm -hmm. yeah that's jay-z the the bit that you that that you're saying is like he's been doing the same thing all along it's just in his earlier career it was just how was he making money he was making money by selling drugs or and then now how is he making money by having business meeting with high executives and he's still just rapping about that yeah yeah literally like absolutely literally and i think that he's the american dream like other than my grandparents who are like the ellis island like you know og american dream then it's jay-z breaking through class barriers breaking through what you would expect like he's talking about in his raps you know like used to sell weed on the streets now i'm selling them legally you know with a balance sheet or whatever his rap would be mm-hmm. about it uh, but one thing that i loved about kobe bryant is he sounded like hood when he was 18 and then by the time he passed away he had almost like a professorial like he was very different in how he articulated himself and i really admired that i wonder if that's i wonder where that comes from that admiration but it's it just goes back to my fascination with like like how gay people could switch with like a higher pitch and a lisp and different um cadences or articulations it's very interesting and i I would love to hear you talk about that more like in a meta way to the extent you have anything yeah no i think uh i think code twitching is is terrific Uh, i code twitch right so if i was if i was uh tasked with presenting my best ideas to the um let's say leadership board at the school of philosophy at stanford I'm going to speak a certain way. Uh, but when I'm with my wife and it's just me and my wife, <laughs> I, I speak as, as you know, if you want to call it Ebonics, uh, I don't know. Uh, there's, there's debate on whether Ebonics is really a language or not. Uh, but certainly, you know, I speak with as much hood slang, blah, 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 you know, kind of black talk as much as I can with my wife as ma- my maximum amount uh, that I can do uh, when I'm talking to my wife. And so why, why don't we get that? Why don't, de- why can't, oh. oh, okay. No, no, go ahead. We What's have Cruz two questions. Uh, I mean, you're talking, you're saying you're talking to your wife that way. So I'm wondering like, it, is that her closer to her default way of speaking? So then you, uh, you know, move to her comfort zone or are you both moving away from, oh, you spend your day talking this way, then you 
you let your guard down, you're comfortable together, you just talk the other way? Uh, I would, I would put it more like this. Let's say your parents, uh, are Mexican, uh, and your kid is Mexican American, natural born citizen. Your kid doesn't speak any Spanish. Your parents only speak Spanish. When you're talking to your kid, you're going to speak English so you can be understood efficiently. When you're talking to your parents, you're going to speak Spanish so you can be understood efficiently. That's what code switching is. Oh, her but so her background is similar to yours. Oh, she's from Compton in that regard. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're from the same town. Met on Tinder from the same town. Now, but I didn't meet her in the town, which is, makes it the interesting story. I met her in LA, uh, but we happen to be from the same town. I, I remember you telling me um, earlier when we met, you, you kind of ranked your identity, and black was probably like third or fourth. Like you put, I think, scientist above black as yep. in terms of like how, how important it is to your identity yep. and then maybe it was after G george floyd or you know some some no big it was way before george floyd it was after uh philando castile and alton sterling mm. yeah yeah then and i think your attitude shifted and yep. being black became more important and i think then you said i want to limit who i date to black woman yeah, no, I did exactly mm -hmm. that. Uh, I was swiping on Tinder, and you know, I tend to tended to date white women. Uh, I just liked white girls. Uh, nothing, nothing wrong with liking white girls. They're wonderful girls, uh, white girls. Nothing, nothing wrong with liking them. And so, uh, but after Philando Castile uh, and Alton Sterling were murdered live on the internet, uh, I said, "My people need me," and then I only swap, only swope swiped whatever the word is only swiped black after that okay yeah the the philando castile case i mean here's a man who was shot five times point blank because the officer didn't believe what he was saying and a jury said yeah we get that that's that's reasonable so that's that's the state of that's the state where we are right now where if a black guy smells like weed, he's wearing dreads in a baseball jersey, and he's not looking you in the eye, and he's telling you that he's not reaching for a gun, you don't have to believe him. You can just shoot him before he pulls out his wallet. That's the Philando Castile case. And the jury said, yeah, we get that. We get that. Makes sense. So Very upsetting. So I would caveat what I'm about to ask with like a lot of how there's nothing about that that's not completely tragic and thuggish and terrible and disgusting and there's no words I'm curious when that came out and it's this is slightly performative but it's important to me like when that was on the national consciousness hmm. it there was a side from there was a side as articulated like a lot of times these people are not perfectly innocent and you paint it as super black and white. And mind you, I will also acknowledge that I'm a hundred percent into the idea that this, the way you said the facts is exactly how it went down. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can get behind that for sure. I've seen enough. I'm an attorney. Like I've seen enough good lawyering to know that that's like entirely possible mm -hmm. where the narrative and the judicial review afterwards goes another way like fine but i wonder 
if that's something that if there's more nuance to that story, but it's, it's fascinating that it had such an effect on you that you made such a big life choice. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, uh, I mean, with, with the, so I, I guess I could say that, that just as, uh, there are understandings about, um, a cultural position that are transmitted through Jewish, families and culture right there are there are attitudes and and narratives that are transmitted from parent to child to grandchild and da 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 uh as a black descendant of slaves there are attitudes and narratives that we transmit down uh, and so as a black person you know you're black early in life uh and that's quite intentional uh that's not an accident that that a black child is told you're black and there's nothing you're going to do but stay black and die uh and that's so you can feel solidarity uh with black now uh, you know as an adult uh, and as a philosopher i started to say wait a minute we're all orange and then question it da, 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 da. but that doesn't change the, the facts that i was that these feelings were put into me very early on but another part of that that this cultural tradition is the keen awareness of the brutal horror that chattel slavery was the the objective line that can be drawn from chattel slavery to the failed reconstruction to the failed reparations to uh jim crow to separate but equal to mass incarceration to the war on drugs it's just it's one line right to the open hole in the 13th amendment or 14th amendment uh there's there's just an open hole there's an open there's a line there right the line is still continuous uh we are closer we are more related uh as as bdos to the last slaves than the last slaves were to the first slaves. So that that tradition is kept alive uh, in black culture. And like I said, as a philosopher, I was very much in the mode of, well, I'm a free person. I can like who I like. I'm not tied to my skin color, da, 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 which is fine, which is all beautiful and good. But when, you know, those those black men were murdered uh, in front of us all, I just I it, it struck me. It struck me in my heartstrings. Oh, yeah. And but then I, mm -hmm, no, but I guess I, I guess I just wanted to say that so so much of the and we and we've known about these extrajudicial killings that happen time and time again, you know, Sandra Bland, uh Tamir Rice, right? These extrajudicial killings are not new. The only thing that are new are the cell phones. That's the only thing that's new. Uh the 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 the, the, the off the books murder, that's been happening a long, long, long time. Uh and we know about them because we're the ones that have been getting killed. But with the Alton Stur and but most of the time, 99% of the time, I would say George and the reason, no, 99.9% .9 of the time, with the exception of George Floyd, George Floyd is really the only exception. Um, the, the, the murders are never prosecuted, never fully, never fully, uh, and not, I shouldn't say not prosecuted, but they're never brought to the full justice of, of the crime from our perspective, right? As a culture. Uh, but in the Philando Castile case, I really had a lot of hope. Because I said, let's let's look at what, you know, let's look at the facts here. He told you that he had a gun so that you wouldn't shoot him. Everybody understood. He told you he's not pulling it out. Everybody understood that that's what he said. As he's pulling his wallet out, you put five in him. Why? Why? Everybody understood he was what he was saying. 
Uh, and so when I read the the uh, transcripts from the court and then why they ultimately acquitted the officer, it was because he kept looking straight ahead. He kept looking straight ahead. So because this guy wasn't looking you in your eyes, you can kill him in front of his daughter. I don't think so. I don't think so. Oh, my God. He had his daughter in the car. Yes. That's that's. There's no there's no words to absolve that. That's um. The, something that I wanted to move, to maybe pivot from this, unless you want to delve further, there's a lot more to no. say, but no, that, um, was, that was it. I'm curious. I mean, there's a ton to ask and there's a ton to unpack. It's just honestly so heavy. I'm curious, why can't we get the version of you that isn't code switched? Why can't I get your Ebonics? And if I did a podcast with you, not if, when, you know, me and Moshe record for my podcast, mm-hmm. um, I would urge that that would be the way you would communicate because it's so much more interesting to have someone with such beautiful expansive thoughts talk in the coolest way possible Moshe is so familiar with how i fetishize it in a way but like you look at the most viral tweets on twitter i bet there's statistics on it if anyone's bothered to do this like the ones that are worded in ebonics you know like why be why we be doing this for real like mm-hmm. you know that's um it's just so cool like, why can't I get that code switch version of you? Why, why, why? If I'm asking for it, maybe you'll just turn I, it on I right now. S- I just want to say that I like the way you speak, Kari. Oh, thank <laughs> no. you, thank you. Uh, I like the way you speak. If you, Moshi. If, if you spoke the the way that Yitzi wants you to speak, I would probably still like it. But I'm just saying, I don't get. I don't really get what like what he's getting at. That if you if you spoke more hood and conveyed your still. I don't know. It, like you know, you know what? You're probably right. No, no, no. Sure. Uh, so it, no, I, I think it. I think I think it relates to what you were saying before, Kari. Where like when you're talking, uh, when you're communicating, you're trying to you're trying to communicate vast ideas as simply as, as simply and concisely as possible. Hmm. And so that's why when you're out in the world in America, we've all agreed that we all know general. American standard, what we call whatever it's called, that version of communicating. Every mm. that's the standard. So if you want to just communicate with someone instantly, you, you you use that mode. But if you if you both speak a different dialect or a different language, like you and your wife, this other, you know, that maybe you could communicate even more efficiently using that way. But uh, I I think it makes sense given the ideas that you're trying to convey why you're speaking the way you are and if you wanted when you're describing let's say someone else's view who might speak in a more hood way why you would suddenly switch to that makes sense to me but well so i guess i guess the question of why uh and and is to be to be fair, we're uh, we're also just not talking to each other. We're talking to all of history, right? Because it's a podcast. So if we, you know, but but also, oh, but to never be, mind me of that. No, oh, okay, good. Uh, but <laughs> but to be fair to myself, even if we were in a room, I'd be talking to you largely the same way, um, pretty much identically, uh, because from what I understand uh, of of you, Jason, and and of you, Moishin, this way that I communicate now is the most efficient, right? So if, if I were to, 
I don't even know how I how I would switch to cover cover the topics. I mean, uh, yeah, but we're not capitalists, Kari. We're not. No, but I mean, not efficiency. Not, it's not, nothing to do with. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm just. I'm just. I'm now. I'm just messing. Now I'm just. Messing. Oh, I get, yeah, I get I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this, Jason. If ever me, if ever me and you were going to a 7-Eleven uh, and you were going to go into the store and pick up something, I'll ask you what you going to get. Right. <laughs> what you going to get, Jason? What would you gonna give? I would ask you right then, and that would be a that would be a switch. That's fire. Yeah, because it's efficient, and it's just but it's about efficient and being understood, right? Because there's no sense in in talking in in a code that then people are gonna go, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? That's inefficient. There's something in hip hop where they're self aware, like Kanye a little bit. I think Ice Cube also, like a, a number of people are very aware of the fact, like Kendrick Lamar, they're all aware of the fact that black people are a centrifugal force of the culture because mm-hmm. the way that you guys come up with certain phrases and then sometimes they break the mainstream and I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but it's just so obvious to me. Um, but maybe that just goes back to like a slightly immature fetishization of all of this. And I, uh, I wonder. No, no. I mean, I can tell you that, that, you know, this and this is uh, I mean, Moshe have talked about this a lot. Uh, there's a lot of overlap in black American culture and Jewish culture because of the external harm and hatred uh, that was pressed onto both of our groups historically. Uh, and so what that creates internally, you know, uh, steel is forged in the fire. Right. And so inside of the culture, it creates it creates an, an attitude of resilience, uh, just an unstoppable resilience. And and it, cre- it creates this rich connection between people who would otherwise not be connected. Right. So, you know, if I see uh, and I and I am actually of two minds about this. One mind is when I see another black guy. Uh, we can, you know, do the nod where I recognize that he's got a teammate in me and I've got a teammate in him without even exchanging words. And we can do that. But my other mind is I want to be able to not feel any more kinship with this person than I do with a person of any skin color. Right. Cause, or, or any stranger, right. This dude's a stranger. I don't know who this dude is. This dude could be a murder just cause he's black. Doesn't mean he can't be some weird murder walking around. Um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Thanks. I think you told me when you were younger, when you'd see another black guy, it would be more of like an ad- adversary. Uh, in, in, yeah, no, in the hood. Yeah, in the hood. It's terrible, man. Especially when I was getting now, it's uh, to be fair, it's getting better. Uh, the gangs, the explicit gangs, as far as I know, have been have been out of fashion for quite some time. But dudes still do a lot of quote unquote thugging uh where and and drug dealing and kind of kind of banding up where it's one crew versus another crew and we're willing to kill each other even though it's not the explicit blood crip t-flat thing like it was for so long um yeah but it was it was it was like uh you know it was it was adversarial right you you looked at other men as adversarial and something that i like that something that i like that coleman hughes uh actually brought to to my attention which is that it's actually the default state for young men to look for enemy combatants uh, just as as animals. Right. Uh, but 
in order to civilize society, we have to kind of police that behavior out of young men so they did so that they don't see each other's adversaries. And so communities with money were had that default behavior policed out of them, but black American communities did not, right? We've just been allowed to kill ourselves more or less, uh, kill each other. Cause, what do you mean allowed? Because the policing, uh, th- it's so easy to get away with a murder. So much easier to get away with murder in Chicago, right? There's so many, so many uh, murders that are just go unsolved, right? Why aren't you catching the murderers, right? People in the hood want to be policed and policed efficiently. We want murder to be punished, uh, to be investigated and catch the people doing the killings, right? But these dudes just fire off and the cops go, oh, well, there's nothing, nobody saw. But th- that ties into people not being willing to uh, say what they saw. You know, uh, I'm one of those changes, right? There's there's this attitude in the hood that, oh, you never tell the police about, about what you saw. You never play witness to a crime. But, uh, you know, I'll be a witness. You know, uh, I'll testify. Uh, I hope I don't ever have to testify. So I don't want to see any murders because I don't want to testify. But I would, you know, I would for sure. And I imagine you two would as well, right? Got yeah, it. for sure. I, I've always viewed, like, when I view a cop car, I get a sense of comfort unless I'm like driving and then I'm like, Oh, what am I going to do? That's wrong. Yeah. Did I stop long enough? But you know, in general, if I see a, a police officer, I get a feeling of comfort like, oh, okay, that he's keeping order around here. And yeah. I'm, I like you know, to think no, of cops I'm, as white blood cells. That's kind of what their role is. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else when you said, uh, when I said, wait, <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. What your job as, as an officer? As a white supremacist? No, no, no. I do not see them that way. I am, I am thin blue line. Uh, I stand with the police. Yeah, I'm not. I am so against defund the police. That's such stu- such a stupid thing. Um, no, police. It is your job to sequester rogue proteins that are doing harm and separate them from the rest of us. That's your job. You're a white blood cell. Feel like, like the. The idea of defunding the police, like just at its face value, it's so absurd that I can't yes. even. I, it's hard for me to believe that anyone believes that 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 that's actually what it means. I, I think for a lot of people, it's like changing what they mean by the word police, or changing what you mean by defund. And like when the 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 people who present that are actually pressed, that's what they end up saying. It's like. No, I, I'm not talking about taking money away. I'm talking about adding money, but to different types of programs. Or Then why know. use the word defund? Do you not know what the word defund means? It's controversial. And because for young people, it just sounds cool to like be rebellious against the the force, the, the bigger forces. Isn't that society. false advertising? If I told you I was selling apples and then presented you with a box full of oranges, isn't that false advertising? Yeah, but it's more of just a vibe than actual... I think than an actual program. Well, then kids need to get their words straight. Their vibes are terrific. I love you. If you, if your vibes are the police need more money and more training and here, look, I would agree with the police need less militarization. We don't need military police everywhere. I agree with that, but they need more money and they need to learn jujitsu. They need to all be at least purple belt jujitsus and they need uh, just more of them. Right. And they need to be able to walk beats and patrol and, and do good policing. They need to know how to be able to handle a fight, a fist fight uh, without being scared of somebody. Right. Uh, uh, How can you be a police officer that's expected to, to sequester violent people if you can't even win a fist fight? Now I'm not throwing the stone of, of 
fist fighting because I can't fist fight. But if but officers should be able to fist fight, right? Am I? I'm not. I don't think I'm unreasonable here. I yeah. I would not be able to be a police officer <laughs> if that's the criteria. Yeah, no, neither would I. But if you, but there are people signing up to be officers, and I say, you know what, train these dudes in jujitsu, at least purple belt. Uh, you know, that's part of fund. I would fu- I say fund that part of police, not defund it. Yeah, that that'll be a campaign slogan. We need more jujitsu in the LAPD. Where is the jujitsu? Yes, more jujitsu in LAPD. Maybe more uh, simulation training. More simulation training. Yes. No, I'm a, I'm a fund the policer, not a defund the policer. Like I said, I'm I'm thin blue line, man. Look, people in there's a difference between life in a city and life in rural in a rural area, right? In a city, you can sleep peacefully because you know that there are men with guns three button presses away willing to do violence on your behalf that's what allows you to sleep peacefully in a rural area there's no such quick response and so you have to be armed because nobody's coming so you have to be able to defend yourself in a city people come within minutes so you don't so that we don't need as much gun concentration in the city but i am fully you know second amendment uh, i think the second amendment is clear citizens can have guns but you know, in the city, we just don't need that many guns. We're all on top of each other. We got the police. We need the police to be funded. They've got the guns, and, and we need nine one one to work. You know, fund the police. Don't defund the police. No static here. <laughs> what type of law do you practice, Jason? Oh, enough about me. I think that this is a point of. A good break. No, I don't know how long these things go. I could totally go for it, but then like, wow, we're just gonna do like a Duncan Trussell, Joe Rogan, yeah, seven-hour marathon. Not seven you hours. Have something. I, I cut it off. Something at better three. to do. You see? I cut it off at three. No, because <laughs> people don't listen to longer than three. There's some code switching. Calling me Yitzi instead of Jason. Oh, you wanna, like oh. admonish me. He calls me like by my childhood moniker of Yitzhak. Oh. Yeah. I, I, you know what? I read the, can I say the names of the characters of the script that I read? Is that proprietary mm-hmm. information? No, go for it. Okay. So I read the, was it Zadie and Zevi? Yeah. We wrote a screenplay, an audio podcast for kids. I, starring I really liked it. Uh, one of my favorite parts was when they were in the cell and the cellmate was kept, <laughs> cellmate said, oh, those are bad colors, man. And the guy says, who are you, man? And he says, don't worry. He says, don't be alarmed. I was raised on a carrot farm. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, how does that, what? You're raised on a carrot farm. That to me, that to me was some like, um, I don't know, some like office type humor, right? Oh, don't worry. I was raised on a carrot farm. So it's all good <laughs> here. Yeah. Actually, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. Cause I, I wrote that line. So I know the thought process behind it because they're in a they're in a dark cell and uh, I wrote that line, but yeah, explain it. You wrote the dark line. I added the carrot farm. No, nah, I, I added the carrot one. I don't. I don't think that's true. Okay, I'm gonna, then maybe I'm gonna you, sue you. Maybe you explain why he grew up on a carrot farm, and if it's the same reasoning, then maybe, it's because oh. it was dark in the cell, and carrot is the vitamin that helps your eyesight. So he's like. Saying that's how I know what mm-hmm. color patterns work. Yeah. Oh, but I don't okay. know. It doesn't matter. Who, we have such a hive mind that we both um, write, and it's very generous of you. It's very thank you for saying that about our 
screenplay. I practice law. It's in... not a screenplay. It's not for the screen. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry. I just sorry. Sorry. No, I, I use screenplay because it was written in screenplay format. But yeah, you're right. I guess it could be it. it yeah. Well, maybe someday we'll get an animator. Don't you work in like gaming? Wouldn't you know animators? Um, I do. I know any animators. I know, uh, not so not two D cartoon animators. Uh, I've got some experience doing three D animation in Blender and uh, Unity three D for games. So I've got some some experience doing that myself. Uh, I'm. I'm probably the the best animator I know. Not to say that I'm a great animator. I'm not a great animator, but I'm probably the best animator that I know personally. Do you know uh, yourself? Uh, I'm, I'm no, kidding. I just no, find it so I funny don't. that I'm like, that you know, would... any animators? You're like, I actually am an animator. <laughs> I didn't see I, that coming. I no, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't call myself an animator because it's hard to do, uh, and I don't like doing it. But but I have, but no, I don't know anyone personally who animates better than me so the team that i was on that was usually what i was tasked with was was doing the animation um except no i do know some animators specifically in a piece of software called uh it's not what am, i'm gonna say it wrong block bench so but that's not you know i don't know any 2d animators all the animators i know myself included are 3d animators that's cool yeah. I, I would only want 3D. Oh, uh, so I don't even know if that's true. It's not probably not true. I'd want whatever's easiest, like to to start. So I but, when I was reading Zadie, what was the name of the story? Is it was it called Zadie? Yeah, you, you nailed it. Yeah. Uh, I was imagining it in in 2D, uh, but I think that's because Moishi primed me on the uh, the the Rick and Morty kind of inspiration. <clears throat> yeah, I guess. Um, I guess I <clears throat> I wrote it with the with the idea of it being audio, and that's what we're running with for now. Mm. But Moshe, really fun story. Thanks, Rick and Morty. You, you mean that's what is that your favorite show or cartoon you'd see? Or Jason? <laughs> that show was is like some of the most formative media for me hmm. because of how boundless it is how sci-fi it is and in, it introduced these like big concepts That's right in great such philosophy fun ways. in that show great philosophy i think i'm too i'm i i would guess that you're like both of you are um like when you called me smart i almost felt uncomfortable like i have good raw brain power but my intellectual curiosity can get a little bit stunted and I'm very focused on certain things and I'm hyper focused on those things. And with those things I'm able to dig and articulate myself, but like with film, it's not like the kind of like how groundhog day, like I'm not sure how much I contemplate the bigger pictures, but when something does have that bigger premise and it's dealing with a philosophical concept, it just smacks differently kind of like maybe black mirror where they're tackling certain societal commentary, but often the bigger trope will even go over my head unless someone else explains it to me, which I enjoy. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure where that rent was coming from, but that's, um, 
that was a bit of an inspiration in writing this kid's show. And I'm really grateful. We have a bunch of episodes coming up. It's basically this time traveling grandson and grandfather. And I feel confident writing it and almost like quote ripping off of Rick and Morty because they don't do time travel. That's their one rule. So this one is, it's interesting. Yeah. That's their one thing. So for this show, that'll be their only thing. Like they're not going to go into portals of like Candyland, where Zevi can like eat the grass and the tr- leaves are sour candy or whatever. Like they're not going to go into these like zany like fartland. They're only going to be on like the space time continuum that we know and kind of like fudge with historical events. And we wrote this one. I'm writing this one episode now where they go back in time to this mobster family. <sighs> And Moshe has been very vocal about how we need to make sure that there's female representation. So the idea is that the matriarch of the family is actually the one that they all revere and she's calling the shots and they're all very, very scared of her. Like she has all of the power in the room at Yentl. And so they go visit this like gangster family who's doing a deal with the Italian family because the Jews and Italians really work together mm. in crime and i'm gonna have that it's all about bootlegging so it's just they're just distributing alcohol so that's something that parents can get behind like okay it's fine if my kid listens to this story because the gangsters are just selling like alcohol like that's illegal now and um so interesting interesting way to do the the i like that that's actually very subtle as you you include this quote-unquote criminal element but their behavior is fully legal today. So that means that they that you can have a disconnect between what's criminal and what's ethical. Just because something is criminal doesn't mean it's unethical. Yeah, totally. I mean, don't get me wrong. As I've been doing some research for inspiration for this, like the characters that I'm basing it on were ruthless murderers, a lot of them, and they were Jewish people. And um, that, that was definitely happening. But yeah, we can all get behind that. Like the prohibition thing was probably driven by some like greed money grab that caused special interest groups to lean in that sort of way. I mean, maybe it was a pure attempt to clean up society. I was reading some of that sort of thought that there was a lot of bit, it was a big religious push to get people to not be drunkards in Mm. rural areas. Mm. I find that hard to believe. I imagine that there was some, you know, you can follow the money trail coming from somewhere. Um, And Jason is into conspiracies. I I love conspiracies. Now, the, you know, I would say that, I would say that, you know, there was, there was once a conspiracy that the earth was round and nobody believed it, right? So you got to be able to put forward unpopular ideas. Uh, People need to be able to articulate unpopular ideas. And so I I categorize conspiracies in that. Uh, So, you know, somebody's putting forward some ideas. Uh, Maybe they're, as long as, as long as they aren't, exactly lying right and and a lie is when you know what the truth is but you articulate something that is not the truth when you know what the truth is right there's a difference between lying and just being misinformed right or, or just and there's definitely a difference between a lie and an unpopular opinion right sure hey, give me your opinion i don't care how stinky it is right but don't don't tell me you know something that you don't or don't tell me something that's that you know to be false right I don't know anyone that would fund what I'm about to say, but I hope to be in a position to do this in the not so distant future where you're on the radio waves in like rural America, you know, and like instead of this crazy pastor saying like weird esoteric Christian stuff to admonish people, 
it's you. It's just you saying your ideas, and that's what I get out to the. It's something. It's so. It's so funny for me to like listen to that kind of radio. Like it's just crazy. It's just nuts. Like whenever I'm driving in, even California, it's a rural area. Like it's always some wonky pastor with a call-in radio show. I'd love to put you on their airwaves. Like what you just said is really beautiful. Yeah, no, I'd love to be on those those radio waves. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a child of the of the IDW. Uh, in as much now, I'm not on board with everything. What's IDW? The Intellectual Dark Web. Uh, you know what is that? That is. I guess you could say it's Joe Rogan, Dave Rubin, Eric Weinstein, uh, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson. That's the dark web. That's and pretty vanilla I stuff feel, there. Like that's not the six. dark web. Well, I mean, that's what the, the, the name that that group. Oh, that's there. There's like a functionality, yeah. like maybe a Reddit group or something. Where yeah, that's something the, like that. Yeah. IDW is like a little okay. miniature subreddit for this particular group of thinkers uh, that that and Ben Shapiro is the sixth of the IDW. So but the reason I like to and, and Sam has officially said he's not part of it. And, you know, I don't know what the, where the, I think Ben has also said, I am not part of this. Don't put me part of it, but I like to keep it around as, as a thing, uh, in my, in my conversations, because to me, these guys really, when we look for, when we go forward in culture and in American culture in like 50 years, like a hundred years, and we trace back the good ideas that kept America going through this incredibly dark time that we're kind of in and going darker into deeper into. I think it will be this group of guys that that got around and kept it alive. Less day. I'm currently not impressed with Dave Rubin, so I don't want to fly his flag as equally as I want to actually take take note to move his flag a little bit lower than the others. I feel like Dave is just drinking right wing Kool-Aid right now. Uh, but. Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Joe Rogan, Eric Weinstein. These guys, uh, to me, are are some of the best thought leaders in our culture acting. Uh, and so I, you know, and I, and I follow them closely. Yeah, Sam was actually my intellectual, uh, was my main intellectual inspiration before JP. Uh, it's JP now. So. For me. So many of those guys are Jewish. Just as a side note. Yeah, I think one of those it's guys. A, it's not a coincidence. Dave, uh, the Jewish two, two of them. Brett and Brett and Eric Weinstein, oh. Dave Eric Rubin, Weinstein, Ben Shapiro, Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Sam Harris is Jewish. Uh, yeah, I think his I think his mother he's, is Jewish, so he's kind of canonically cult right, kind of linear lineagely Jewish or something like that. But he himself does not practice the religion of Judaism. Mm. Yeah. They called it the intellectual dark web, Jason, kind of in a mocking way. Like their ideas aren't that far out there. It's basically just left wing, but anti-woke and for having open ideas, open discussion. So they, you know, they, they called it that yeah. kind of sarcastically. Yeah. I think the, I think the American extremes are actually, so when I, the analogy that I use is two trains on the tracks. And I feel like it's a train from the left of communism that, and this is what woke is in my uh, analysis, that it will ultimately, and not even, not even ultimately, just right now, it's already beginning to explicitly impede speech, right? From the left, they're saying, you can't say that, you can't say that, you can't say that. Uh, and from the right, 
it's fascism, maybe under authoritarianism and under Trump, uh, where what he's is doing is throw all the rules out and follow me. And then, and, and, you know, I want, I actually won in 2020, right? The big lie, whatever he says is true. It doesn't matter whatever else, whatever I say is true. Right. And that's, that's kind of the other train. So you got this train of inhibiting speech and then you got this other train of everything I say as a strong leader is true. And in between, you know, what, and those trains will collide and what will emerge from the wreckage and what will bring us out of the wreckage are the ideas that are present in the IDW. Right. That's the way I look at it. Um, which is mainly just about I, protecting your freedom. I don't of speech. think that any. Of, I don't think. I don't know. I don't think any of those people are the salvation. No, the but ideas. I, like I said, the idea mainly that. What ideas you, does Joe Rogan have? Uh, honest communication for one. Uh, and when I say honest, I mean I'm comparing that to Donald Trump's big lie. Uh, that he won 2020 when he knows he didn't, but he still goes around saying that he won 2020. Uh, and the other is communication across culture and face-to-face communication across culture, right? So sitting, literally sitting across the table with someone that you disagree with at a religious fundamental level, but still wishing them physical success in their life. So Joe, to me, Joe Rogan is like an embodiment of civility. Uh, and he's also an embodiment of of self improvement, right? Uh, and him him more than the others, right? So he he ma- he maintains the component of the IDW that says you need to also be physically strong if you can, right? Um, and that's something that, that Nietzsche would have told you, right? And then JP is all about uh, also about improving yourself psychologically, keeping track of your own words, being aware that every word you speak shapes you uh, and so you want to speak with aspirations towards true speech uh, you want to keep that in mind i think ben shapiro brings to the table uh, the jewish lineage I, I mean him and eric of course bring to the table the rich jewish lineage and culture uh, the biblical judeo-christian culture that that has got so much of the west founded and running and moving uh, i think you guys would agree with that like i said sam uh, he brings in kind of he has the 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 rationalist thought to say, hey, let's remember as we all sit around talking about the table about our gods, let's remember that we're all in the same universe. And, and this is kind of we need to be remember that, you know, that that physics reigns supreme. Right. No matter what you no matter what we all think differently about our gods, we still live in the universe with, with asteroids that can smash us. And so we need to be aware of that. Uh, but I give, like I said, I give less, I, I bring Dave's flag a bit lower, uh, cause I'm not sure that he's, I'm not sure that he's thinking deeply about his, his positions. I think he just, when I watch Dave, I just see him and I, I hear him just mirroring talking points. Um, which I mean, you know, I used to, do you, man, I used but to, you should be thinking. I used to listen to him a lot. I think he was really what a lot of the basis of my politics is based on just because he introduced me to a lot of those other characters that that you're listing. Yeah. A lot of it started with Dave because Dave made the transition from left to right. Right. Yeah. He was on the young Turks. Yeah. He was, which is the transition that we all need to make as we grow. Right. It said that if you're young and you're not a liberal, you don't have a heart. And if you're old and you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. Right. So as you, when you're young, you should be, I mean, not should, but young people tend to lean 
liberal, right? They just, they tend to, because they, they have hearts, they care about culture, they care about the world, they want to help the world. They're full of potential and energy and life and light, and they want to be helpful. Okay, be liberal. Uh, but then as you age and mature and grow wise, you learn that our traditions are actually rich in wisdom that you can't even comprehend. And this is JP, right? You can't even comprehend the wisdom that's being passed down to you through traditions. So who are you at 19 to say, buck all the traditions? You're no, you can't say that. These traditions has kept, have kept us alive for millennia and you're just going to buck them all because you think you're better. No, you can't do that. I don't like the, I don't like the accusation of grifter because I feel like it gets thrown around too much and you, you don't really know someone's intentions, but because I spent so many hours like you know watching david rubin interviewing people mm. and at some point i stopped and then i saw on twitter sort of like uh people calling him a, like there's something where i think out of that bunch he's the most of a grifter where maybe at some point it was really this big intellectual this whole you know uh crisis or adventure that he went on trying to figure out what's the truth and then i feel like he just sort of like found his little niche and just you know is repeating what he knows his audience wants to hear yeah yeah and it's it, it it's it's in his tone you know like i said the last one i watched his tone is you know, of course, smug. this it's very smug. Of course, this article that I just read on OAN is telling us all the truth because the liber because the libs always lie about everything. And I go, come on, Dave, what happened, man? Uh, you were thoughtful ten, you know, seven years ago. This I don't hear thoughtfulness anymore. First principles, man. Moishi, what do you could... what do you think of Elon Musk? <laughs> what do I think of Elon Musk? Yeah. I wanted to, um, because Jason brought it up maybe two or three times that, you know, you said your girlfriends pushed you in the sort of academic. No. Uh, but, but actually when you were listing, uh, Joe Rogan's, you know, positive attributes, one thing I would add is that he blurs the divide between highbrow and lowbrow intellect because he'll have professors who were like, you know, experts in the mushrooms of this particular rainforest mm -hmm. and then just have a three hour conversation with them. And it's like, where would you get that before? Unless you were of that class where like you just knew professors, you know, family, friends or your own family, like where would you really get that to just have a, someone of that caliber intellect, just having a laid back conversation, trying to explain whatever their area of expertise is along with the rest of, you know, their life story. Yeah, I think uh, I think Joe Rogan is a little bit, uh, a little bit, not all the way, uh, but a little bit like Socrates of our generation. Uh, Socrates would be the first to tell you, I'm not smart. I'm an idiot. You know, you're the one. <laughs> Socrates whole thing was you're the one claiming to be smart. <laughs> He would tell you, I'm an, idiot. I'm an idiot, man. You're the one claiming to be smart. I'm just asking how you think you know what you're claiming to know. And he tore all their structures down doing that. Jason and I just visited the Getty Villa, which I don't oh, know nice. if you've ever been. It's, I have. It's really beautiful. But yeah. 
No, 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 no. I, I was just it back. You said Getty Villa, and I heard Getty Center. I've never been to the Getty Villa. I've been to the Getty Center many times. Oh, you, you've got to go. It's a it's a recreation of a real villa that was destroyed during the the volcanic eruption in oh, Pompeii. No. Okay. So it's uh, almost an exact replica, or it's like you know largely inspired by what it would actually look like, and the climates are somewhat similar. So there's a you know a garden where it has all the different herbs that you know that's what where those people would get their herbs from but anyways I, when you said uh joe rogan as socrates i i just imagine like a, a bust of joe a marble bust of joe rogan yeah. in a museum in a thousand yeah. years oh yeah <laughs> i dig it man i dig it uh but to tell the story before so the, there are probably listeners who are on the hook about this story too it's very well. funny you guys changed my opinion of him but yeah, please. Joe? <laughs> yeah, cool. Go for it. Uh, so, when I was a sophomore in Miss Smith's geometry class, uh, there was a girl who sat in front uh, named Diana, and she was a senior. I was a sophomore. Uh, she was incredibly pretty, incredibly hot, and. It, she had a boyfriend when I when I learned about it, and she was just a, a a girl who I in my mind said, you know, if ever I'm cool enough, uh, I would want to be with a girl like her. Well, she broke up with that guy. Uh, at some point, I don't know if I don't think I moved to the front of the class. I think maybe Smith Smith moved me, but I ended up sitting next to her in class and got my shot uh, at being her boyfriend, and it meant the absolute world to me the absolute world. Uh, and so in order to stay uh, in the in the good graces with my new super hot, super pretty girlfriend, uh, I just did well. And I wasn't particularly interested in school. And I just did barely well enough to, you know, get by in class. Like I said, I wasn't particularly interested, but I just paid half attention and, and spit back to the teachers what they spit to me. And so I accidentally got a 3.0 uh, and then we were, oh, and I, t I say that cause she was on the Dean's list. Uh, and so in order to sit next to her in the assemblies, I had to also be on the Dean's list. So I had to get at least a 3.0. Uh, so I got my 3.0. I was sitting on the floor of the auditorium during an assembly and we were being honored as members of the Dean's list. And it was when I looked back, I had my arm around her and I looked back and I saw all the other students in the stands and we were down on the floor in special shirts being honored. And I said, this is cool, man. And so that kind of began my, my, uh, that kind of bent my trajectory into academia. Makes me think of the Jordan Peterson thought of like, you know, men use perfection of women. <laughs> However, he has like his little weird Kermit the Frog tenor in his mm -hmm. voice, but that's kind of cool. So this girl kind of motivated you and it put you on this other track yep. where you were what reading more. Is that what it was? Uh, getting good, gr keep my grades up. Right. Uh, yeah, I kept my grades up and, and saw that I could keep my grades up. And then, so after that, after I, after I accidentally got a 3.0, I said, I wonder if I can get a 4.0, uh, just to see, I said, this is kind of crazy. And so then I tried actively tried to get a 4.0 biology was my hardest class. And so I really, really focused on biology, but I kind of let math slide because math was my easiest class. And I missed one assignment. And I, so I was 20 points short. You needed an 89.5 to round up in Miss Smith's class. And I was 20 points short. One assignment. I had like an 89 flat. 
and I needed those 20 points to get to the 89.5. But and I I pleaded with her. I said, Miss Smith, I've got all A's except for this one class, and I've got an 89 here. You gotta give me an A, you know, for my 4.0. And she said, I can't do it. She said, you don't have an 89.5. She said, I already round up and the rules apply to everybody. And so I had all my, I had four A's and a B plus on that report card. Well, you, uh, I've never had any sort of collection. I mean, I did well in one semester, but other than that, I, I was never a 4.0 kind of guy. Hmm. But I, you know, good on Ms. Smith for sticking to her principles. That was probably a, a better lesson than giving me the grade. I had the opposite experience once because uh, I was basically a straight A student in high school. And uh, one semester, I think maybe my girlfriend, it was my first girlfriend. She broke up with me after like a month and I was just like in such a bad state. And so then in my English class, you know, my grades slipped a little bit and then the following semester, the teacher pulled me aside and was like, I did the calculations and you got a B plus, but I consider you an A student. So I'm giving you <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Good. First impressions are lasting ones, man. You impressed her. So my undergrad degree is through a yeshiva, a yeshiva that partnered, which a yeshiva at the time I was 22, I was just learning Talmud full time. That's all I was doing. They would allow you to carve out part of the time to go to a college, and they had a partnership with the college where the college accepted credits for learning Talmud. And so I got more than what Moshe got on just an astounding level, Mm. where I called a woman from my yeshiva office. She's like, what grades should I give you? And I was like, well, run it all A's and give me one A minus so it looks legitimate. And that was for 60 credits of my bachelor's degree. And then one of my uh, classes was business law. It was this taught by this Irish guy. And he made a joke that there was a student once that bought him a bottle of Grey Goose and he gave him an A for that in the class. So after class, I said, yeah, I said, do I need to buy you a bottle of Grey Goose? And then we get this deal done. And he said, yeah, but make sure it's one of these like airport, like parody, huge style so I uh, bought him that, and he gave me an A. <laughs> so 65 credits or at whatever. Least, at least 63. he was a man of his word. Yeah, I felt pretty felt pretty weird. I think part of his role was to teach me ethics, business law ethics. So, Can I um, ask you, Jason, as someone who's, who's studied uh, the Talmud extensively, Moshe just introduced me to this, this uh, 613 mitzvot. Do you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Mm-hmm. Is there a what? What's the you know? Is there a hierarchy to these these six thirteen? Are they? Is there an order? Or is there a grouping? How should or I guess I should ask: Can a person outside of the Jewish tradition even think about the mitzvah as applying to their lives at all? I'm I'm curious to know if I'm curious to know if there's any application that I can take as just a, a you know a human on earth not necessarily in the Jewish lineage but someone who's interested in being a good human uh, what 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 can I do with the 613 well the 613 is ancient because there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them that apply only when the Jews had a holy temple which they don't have so they're largely irrelevant for today 
The biggest principle that you can take out of the hierarchy that you wanted to ask about is it's called so that's um, like ancient Hebrew for a commandment to do is greater than a commandment not to do. So if there's a commandment to do something that conflicts with a commandment not to do something, so don't break Shabbat, mm. don't drive a car in Shabbat, don't you know, don't light a fire, which they've extrapolated to driving cars. So don't drive a car in Shabbat. Well, someone's life is in danger, and you are, you must do whatever you can to save someone's life. Mm. So then you can, when those two are in conflict, and I love that. There's this movie that Moshe turned me on to, The Believer with Ryan Gosling playing an ex-yeshiva student that becomes a Nazi or just like a fascist, hateful, like Nazi-esque type of person. And he addresses that in a way. He says how Judaism's a, a religion about doing things. And that's really what it is. It's about doing things and living for the community. That That's the essence of it. Doing for the community. Hmm. That's, that's, yeah. So Well, doing for yourself, doing... I think it's like uh, put the mask on yourself before you put on your neighbor, you know, in the airplane. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, I think a lot of the commandments are about every aspect of your life, which a lot of it is similar to what animals do. You know, you eat, you defecate, you fornicate, you know, a human can live their entire life that way. But a lot of the commandments are, I think, to, depending on how cynical you want to be, either control people by controlling those things. So every time you eat, you have to make a small blessing before and after just to put you in a different frame of, of mind when you're doing these mundane things. So, or just controlling your urges, those sorts of things. I think a lot of the commandments are for that. And then there are other ones that are more about like, how to have a functioning community how do you how do you have you know treat your neighbor like yourself that's uh, as the great rabbi said um rabbi akiva said if if you know someone came and said on one foot i'm standing on one foot tell me all of judaism and he says treat your neighbor li li like you want to be treated or some variation of that mm. you know and the the rest are just details so i think that's true too you could say why do you need to refine yourself? Why do you need to not just be a glutton? Sure, there are health benefits for, for yourself, but the less of a glutton you are, the more likely you are to distribute the extra that you have to other people. Mm. You know, tie it into distributism. <laughs> and, uh, I I hear a lot of overlap with, with what uh, JP talks about. I like what you said, Jason, about doing uh, for your community. And, and then Moshe, you, you emphasize what you have to do for yourself to, in order to do for your community. And so JP likes to talk about uh, concentric circles of of positive effort, focused effort. Right. And then the center of the circle is you. Right. You have to do positive, focused effort on yourself. And then the next circle outward is your nuclear family. This is your your wife and your kids or, and your parents. Right. So. And your brothers and your sisters, uh, you have to do and then you do for them, but you have to do for yourself first and then you do for them. And the next circle is your extended family. And then it's your neighborhood and your city and your state and your nation and your ultimately your, your species. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe some people would draw it out to the planet and the universe. That's fine. I am 
a human chauvinist. Uh, I I end my ethics at at humanity. Uh, you know, hey, I love bears, but if I had to choose humans or bears, I'm going to choose humans. Uh, but but you start with yourself, and you need to be doing for yourself. Then you can do for your community and focus on these positive doings. I like that. There's also the emphasis on doing in contrast to simply believing. Like certain mm. certain uh, religions, you, as long as you say a certain thing or say you believe a certain thing, then you're part of that group. For Judaism, there's much more an emphasis on what are you doing? Are you doing the things that we're doing or are you doing those other things? Mm. Mm. And um, But another thing I wanted to say was... Uh, because you were asking, like, you know, what what can you take away from the 613? And uh, we were talking about this yesterday, and I was telling you that, in fact, se- that there are seven that, according to Judaism, apply to all humans. And um, I think most of those, like, you wouldn't have a problem with. But, um, like, I, th- I think a, a lot of it is just now in our day and age, it's just taken for granted that like you know do not steal that's something wrong that you're not do, do not kill you know in, in the in the time that the bible was written or composed or whatever you want to say uh child sacrifice was was a normal thing that people would do and so the story of abraham some people will read it as like, oh, that's so horrific. He was going to sacrifice his son. That's horrible. Why would he do that? Like, that's, you know, but in the in the age in which it was written, in the end of the story, the, you know, the climax is that he doesn't sacrifice his son, even though he feels like he's supposed to. Hmm. And that's, to me, that's the message. That's the message of it. Like, you have to read these things uh, in the context in which they were written to try to extract how you could apply that to your own life. So if you were genuinely asking, how can I apply to the 613 to my life? I would say, okay, let's, let's create a study group and we'll study stuff. And I'm sure we'll derive some lessons from, you know, what we study. Uh, but it's like a constant process. You're supposed to study this stuff, you know, in your spare time every day. And uh, that's not something jason or i do anymore because we're not in that world but there is always part of me that is nostalgic for that because the way that you study talmud it's really unlike anything else that i know of or that i've encountered i'm sure there are other religions i think i've seen other religions that are come that are come close to it but um the way that you, you study this ancient text that is written in a combination of ancient aramaic and then it quotes the Bible, and so there's already this linguistic obstacle. You're already having to go to the dictionary all the time, but then it's just dense uh, arguments, legalistic arguments, stories, myths. It's all this stuff mixed to one, and the way that it's typically studied is you study it one-on-one with another person. It's called a chavrusa. Hmm. You study it, and you and you basically battle with each other. Like there are times where I would be like yelling at the guy, and we're just like arguing over how to interpret this certain phrase. But we get so animated about it, and I I feel like you know when I went to college, 
there wasn't much of that. There wasn't much of that where we have this idea, maybe uh, this sort of ideal of college, like maybe it existed one time, but doesn't exist anymore. Or maybe it never existed where like, you know, everybody's just like arguing about really intellectual stuff all day. My experience at UCLA was like, everybody was so afraid to say anything wrong that they wouldn't really challenge whatever the professor was saying or whatever the other student was saying. And that contrasted so sharply from, you know, I just came uh, from Israel studying in Shiva for a year from seven in the morning to 11 at night. Most of the time you're just sitting next to this guy arguing <laughs> about, sometimes it's more philosophical, but sometimes it, even if it's a mundane thing, the fact that you could argue this thing out and see and then just you go to lunch together and you're friends yeah i, I think no, that's uh that's real i would argue, i would describe that as real philosophy or real theology right uh and that's you know i i often brag about how uh, the real philosophers at ucla when we were there met at the sculpture garden twice a week at sundown uh and so and i went to the quote unquote philosophy majors clubs and they were all arguing with each other over their own circular definitions. So, you know, elascotism is actually part, uh, non, non dual, non elascotism because da, 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 da. And so that they were all arguing over definitions. I was like, you guys aren't talking about anything real. Um, you know, when we sat at the sculpture garden, we were talking about, well, you know, how do how do the politics of today affect us in the sculpture garden? We were comparing religions and then, you know, we were talking about real things, uh, you know, men, men, relationships between men and women and women's place society, stuff like that. Right. And this is years ago. Uh, we were talking about those things. So, no, it was great, man. It was great. And those were the days. Well, look, uh, that's that's pretty much three hours. I will let you guys go go back to your evening. I want to thank you both uh, so much. This has been an exciting, enlightening, enriching conversation, and I only hope and cross my fingers that it won't be the last. It won't. We're, we're going to have to do this more often. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is awesome. Nice. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for stopping by, guys. We'll do it again. Take care. Bye.